Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and I am finally back in D.C. with my soundboard and things, but apparently this little hiatus from my tools have caused me to press every button in the book and do a lot of bizarro things in the setup, so apologies for all the sound effects at the start of this episode. Uh, We are talking about today's episode should I care as one six about a leftist with Jen Briney of the Congressional Dish back on? And additionally, I just want to say, I was, I just got home um, from New York and I was in a cab home and the radio was playing and they had a Hill reporter being interviewed about the battle over the speakership and how many concessions these far right members of Congress were able to get from Kevin McCarthy, um, things that diminished Kevin Kevin McCarthy's power as Speaker of the House, and how because they only could lose four votes, these conservative right-wingers were so incredibly empowered. Um, And excuse me, and what was Kevin McCarthy going to do and all this stuff? And I'm sorry, it is just like such a mind trip. And I just can't believe, I'm torn between really wanting to 
make amends and come together as a left community. But I, I will admit that I'm struggling with where the line between letting things go for the greater good of having unified left media and requiring some degree of accountability for all of the lies <laughs> that were told uh, two years ago this time and how many reputations were smeared and how people continue to, to talk down to me and around me and about me and past me and all of these ways. And they're just like absolutely no consequences for it. I mean, straight up lies like Kevin McCarthy could be Speaker of the House if squad members didn't vote for Nancy Pelosi. And at no point, like I, I really am willing to let it go and stop holding grudges against individuals. But like there really has not been even one second of accountability or you know what? I was wrong about that. Like I got that fact wrong and that really colored my understanding of things or fine. I hate Jimmy Dore, but like I, I the, 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 the strategy was actually sound and we should have been able to see past that, even though I still hate Jimmy Dore. Like, I don't really care what you personally and your fifis feel about Jimmy Dore, but it does really irritate me. Even now, as some people are saying, yes, I told you so and, and feeling some validation from this moment, they're still framing this as Jimmy Dore was right. And, you know, Jimmy Dore took a lot of heat for this. So I certainly, and he was the one that put it, out there in a real big meaningful way certainly i first heard about it because sam cedar was talking about having heard it from jimmy dora i don't want to take anything away from that but also given that there was this big rich broad community of people pushing for this including cornell west and crystal ball and kyle kalinsky you know and chris hedges it is frustrating that like there's just no like i don't know it would be nice if there were some support for all of us who lost a lot for saying the true and right thing and who continue to have the reputations dragged through the mud regularly across social media because they were fundamentally right about something that was fucking obvious as the nose on my face. I gotta say, I gotta say. Okay, sorry, I just have to get that off my chest. <clears throat> That's what's on your girl's mind. But as always, we can talk about whatever on your mind. <clears throat> and I will start with this cue. Andrew, what's on your mind tonight? I uh, I feel like it's such an achievement to get the in the top fucking five of people in your in your <laughs> call-in shows. So I'm still <laughs> shocked and patting myself on the back too much. But um, I I mean I have some thoughts about the one six episode. I thought it was solid. I thought uh, long story short, the we just shouldn't have the electoral college is the the right take. Um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, that may be oversimplifying all of the various problems with, um, you know, anti-democratic possibilities and realities in the U.S. I think it's good always to bring up the 2000 election as a successful coup against the electoral process, against the democratic mm. process. Um, but I actually, if you want to, I wanted to go back a little bit to your episode with Mark Lamont Hill and your episode with Ralph Nader. I, I've been really, uh, I really love those two. I always, I think you're kind of on a, a hot streak all the time, but those two were especially good. Oh yeah, sure. Great. We can talk about it. What was on your mind? Um, the, the Mark Lamont Hill episode first, um, where there was a talk about, why is it that um, anti-Semitism Hello, Andrew? 
Andrew, you dropped out after you said anti-Semitism. Hello? Do you guys? No, it doesn't look like he muted himself. He, and there's no mute. There's no mute there. Can you hear me? And, oh, you're back. You're back. I'm not sure what happened. I'm not sure either. I, well, actually, I am sure. I have really bad Wi-Fi, so I just went on to phone data. But I don't know why my Wi-Fi is so bad. Um, what was the last thing you heard? I just heard after you said uh, anti-Semitism. Oh, boy. Okay, yeah. The U.S. Um, and a lot of Western Europe, at least in performative ways, will be totally okay with fighting anti-Semitism, um, you know, throwing the book at people who are really egregiously uh, offensive to Jewish people, um, never mind the fact that there's more Semitic people than just Jewish people, but um, I thought the whole episode with Mark Mutthill was really good, but I wanted to talk about, like, why, in, in, my, in my opinion, and I wonder what you think of this, why does the U.S. especially, but also Western Europe, really play up Nazi Germany um, at, as like the worst possible expression of bad, um, you know, a state gone wrong. When mm -hmm. we've, you know, you've explored on your show and others have explored on their shows, how fucked the U.S. was all throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, you know, the or or like the the British Empire, their their control of India and the their extraction of food and other resources causing the deaths of over 140 million people in a 10 year period. Um, mm. that kind of, you know, almost overlaps with world war two. I think that the reason that we keep hearing when it comes to foreign policy, everything is 1938. Every mistake is Neville, Neville Chamberlain, the U S um, fights fascism. And that's why we're the good guys. I think it's because, it's to overshadow it, either in the minds of people who kind of want to believe in the patriotic myths um, or in the people who know that it's not true. They know how fucked the U.S. is and what we do all the time is that bad. But it's it's just that Hitler's on film doing this shit. George Washington eradicating whole villages um, on the East Coast and profiting off of that because people were creating land speculation companies that were just buying up and and deeding land to settlers um, to, to found the U.S. economy. I mean, that stuff's not on camera. There weren't even photographs uh, at that point. I think photographs came around in 1835, and then you start to see little bits and pieces of the, you know, the horrifying reality of chattel slavery in the U.S. and the sort of uh, mercenary and formal and militia warfare to push west. You start to see it, but it's just there's not as much around. And so I think some people, um, they don't even want to go there. Like um, I was listening to Katie's podcast uh, a while ago when she interviewed Lev Golinkin about his research on neo-Nazis and mm. sort of neo-fascists. And I really appreciate Lev's work. And I don't mean to get like riled up by one thing he said, but it wasn't even like a whole, uh, you know, motif in his interview. It was literally like one sentence. He said that it's unambiguous how bad the Nazis were, as opposed to the sort of 
fuzzy areas about the founding fathers of the U.S. And I just don't think that's real. I don't think that it's there's a real difference. I think that um, if you put um, Napoleon, Washington, um, Andrew Jackson, even um, Woodrow Wilson into the modern era with, um, you know, with the amount of poverty and and turmoil that Germany had in, in the modern era, they would just be another Hitler. Or if you put Hitler back into their eras, he might be, you know, a painting in, in history books of a, of a noble founding father instead of like, a, a, you know, the monster that he is. So I, I wonder, do you yeah. think that that is like, do you agree that that seems to be like, either intentionally or subconsciously why or be- yeah look I, I think there's something to the argument that if you I think someone in the chat said this you know World War II is the only war that we've been unambiguously on the right side of then you're going to want to hype that up and use that as a characterization for U.S. involvement U.S. interventionism uh, even though it's not true and, I, and look uh, these conversations are difficult because I really have no interest in getting into uh, a Prussian Olympics because I do think that that's a technique used to divide and conquer. But I really do think there's something to the fact that we are, we have, we have created as a society the perception of what is and is not ambiguous in terms of looking at historical figures and founding fathers and people like that. And while on some level I am sensitive to the fact that we've all been indoctrinated to believe that certain historical figures were not that bad, at least as compared to Nazis, and that it is oftentimes a conversation stopper to try to get people to understand that if you tally up the numbers of lives lost because of various colonizers and and founding fathers and slave traders and whatnot, you can very quickly get to numbers that rival or exceed the numbers of people that were killed in the Holocaust. I mean, I recently came across, I had never seen the, the 10 million number for people killed in the Congo in like the early part of the last century. I mean, really crazy numbers, if it's just numbers. And of course, it's not just numbers. There's cruelty. There's generations of enslavement. There's all kinds of ways you can tally up horrors. And again, I hate to tally up horrors for comparative reasons, but it's not... I'm torn between this idea of like trying to communicate with people on the right who are never going to see Christopher Columbus as a Nazi and the reality that if you really, really, really did want to make the most aggressive kind of like liberal sociologist argument, you can make the argument. These people are just as bad as any other kind of person. What's the political utility of doing it? I don't know. Morally, I think it's perfectly justified, to be honest. But yeah, I do think that from a political perspective, the utility of doing so, the, the utility of having done the myth-making that we've done, that puts kind of Nazis head above all else in their own category and makes it even, you know, anti-Semitic or at very least very disrespectful to compare other things to Nazism. We have Goodwin's Law and all of that, you know, um, that says if you compare something to a Nazi, you've basically gone off the rails and it's a bad argument. You know, part of the reason why we've, done that as a society is because it insulates America from the, from the, the norm, the, the critique of how it normally behaves and the ambiguity of its, of its normal international behavior. 
and it's a it's a clean playing field for America to play on and beat its chest over, relatively at least as compared to everything else. But it's I mean it's it's hard because it it really is it's genuinely one of the most terrible moments in American history. And how to have that conversation about why it is that we hold that one up without seeming like you're trying to minimize that it was in fact one of the most terrible moments in you know modern history. Uh, it's diff- it's a difficult dance. Yeah, and I, I think one other thing you mentioned in there is the utility that this, you know, I don't know even what to call it. Like, you can call it whitewashing, but it's like you're whitewashing all of these other historical figures and, and events and, you know, political phenomenon, or you're reverse whitewashing the Nazis, like, I guess you're not really, but it's just, you're not whitewashing the Nazis and you are everyone else, or you're just like putting them on a pedestal. It also serves continually to, um, to muddy the waters in the discourse around us and other Western European ongoing Imperial military projects. Um, and also, um, when you mentioned the Congo, I thought you were about to talk. Um, I mean, yes, under, uh, King Leopold. Yeah. It was like, in equally horrific it was basic it's just another holocaust and um yeah the the whole like numbers game i agree it can get kind of revealed but i think it is actually important um to have like a rounded perspective and understand history is to understand that as bad as that was it's only described as so bad because of because of who it happened to and who at this point in time is running uh world affairs which governments are still powerful economically, militarily, who has control of how much media. Uh, but I thought you were going to say that th- there's been almost a similar number of Congolese who have died, um, you know, because of warfare since the end of the Rwandan civil war. The Rwandan genocides ended, and um, this is actually something Rudy talks about all the time. Rudy is another uh, fan of your show, and he has his own call-in show. And he always is talking about and following and and a lot of times it's from Black Agenda Report where he'll get good sources if anyone wants to look into it, but other sites as well about how the the Rwandan country since the end of that war sort of has become this base of operations for um, like African forces as well as European and American forces to carry out raids and militias will carry out raids into the Congo to keep it destabilized and keep the, you know, the, the tin, tantalum, gold and uh, copper and uh, most importantly now cobalt coming out of the country. And it's, it's like literally almost an exact repeat of King Leopold's reign. It's just like a, a couple more countries are taking part. And I just saw there was a uh, Rogan show, this guy, I'm going to look up his name so I don't butcher it. Sidharth, um, something he's a indian american fellow and he has been researching slavery and human trafficking and then just released a book on the congo so he might be a good guest actually that's kind of a sidetrack but uh no i appreciate it cute what's the what's the guy's name against i'm looking right now hold on i'm, I'm get there in like 15 seconds Give me, siddhartha <laughs> kara so s-i-d-d okay oh, no siddhartha kara um, so Siddharth, two D's, and then Kara, K-A-R-A. Um, yeah. And before I go on too long blabbering, I might just actually 
call in another time about the thoughts on the Nader episode um, and just give you one other recommendation for an interview. Okay. Um, there was, well, generally I think there's, there's, there's two people I'd recommend to interview about like urban agriculture. Um, I think it's, I think urban agriculture and then like changes in the more rural, like the larger agricultural system are really desperately needed. I think it's, I've been talking about this over and over, repeating myself and especially since there's a big inflationary wave. Um, but yeah, there's, um, Tanya Denise Fields, uh, runs a nonprofit out of New York that does urban agriculture. Um, and then also, uh, Amanda Lee runs a group that I actually do some work for in Seattle called, um, well, the place that we built is called the Heron's Nest. We also do urban agriculture, but there's a lot of other urban farms in Seattle that are much more established than us. So I might just send you an email with like other people's contacts, but yeah, I think it's like, if you're putting money back in people's pockets, you're, you know, trying to erase food deserts without just giving somebody, uh, like a Walmart or a Safeway or whatever for their options for food. Mm -hmm. I think it's super important, but I'll just leave okay, it there or else I'll keep talking too long. <laughs> you have a huge queue. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. And I'm sure the cute is as well. And I always really appreciate uh, the recommendations for guests. So thank you that you've been very thoughtful, Andrew. I'm glad you were able to make it through. Yeah, me too. I'm usually like 17th or 39th or whatever. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> start, I'll start hopping around more uh, than I've been doing recently. But I appreciate you, Andrew. Thanks for, for calling. Keep the faith. Uh, Anya, what's on your mind this evening? Anya, are you with us? I see Hello, you're unmuted. You yes, I can hear you. What's okay. on your mind? Uh, I am having a good night, actually. But, um, oh, yeah? Why is that? I was, hoping, uh, I was smoking a little bit today. I was chilling. <laughs> I took a nice nap. You know, it was just, it was just a nice day. Uh, but I got to talk to you about this Marianne Williamson thing, girl. Come on. Okay, so here's the thing. I, I'm somebody who foreign policy is my litmus test. You feel me? Okay. And I believe that for, they're like, there's, I think there's tangible reasons. And I don't think that the criticism of Marianne's foreign policy has been articulated, I think, fully. Okay. Want to try to do that for us now? I will attempt to, but we'll see how much the prior activities affect the articulateness of this. Anyway, <laughs> let's go. Okay. Okay. So, um, so, okay. Why is foreign policy important? Well, despite what liberals want you to believe, National politicians have more power on foreign policy than they do over domestic policy. President mm -hmm. can basically do whatever the fuck, bomb whoever the fuck they want at any given, at any point. So the idea that we should care about domestic policy, it's completely inverse and stupid, honestly. So I think national policy, if you're running for national office, I think you have a lot to answer for in terms of the United States foreign policy. I think if you don't want those questions, you should run for local office. I also think there's stuff like it's really if you thought if you if you didn't know if the squad or Bernie were going to be disappointments up until this point, you looking at their foreign policy history or what they said on foreign policy prior to being elected is actually a really good indication. Mm -hmm. um, so and I also like this is a little bit of an aside, but as, as somebody who's queer, I always feel like a little uncomfortable with the fact that 
like for some, for example, somebody like John Fetterman can say things about continuing the genocide of Palestinian people. But I feel like if he had that same energy for LGBT people here, a lot of those liberal people would not support him the same way. So I feel like some, in some way, I don't know if I don't know how to really put it, but you sort of having communities wedged against each other in this really insi- insidious way, right? So I think, anyways. Uh, so that's kind of the background is that I think foreign policy should be more important to leftists, not less. And I think our politicians should probably be getting better and not worse. So like, this is kind of like my, my main point is that we know that running in this primary, it's rigged. You're, you're not going to win. So I think a lot of the, the fundamental thing is like, okay, if we're investing in electoral politics, what are we actually getting out of it in a tangible way? And I think if we're running like a candidate who's supposed to be like a messaging candidate, shouldn't we get a candidate that actually like disagrees with major issues with the liberal worldview and Joe Biden's worldview, like Ukraine or anything foreign policy? So uh, did you want to say anything yeah, before I went off my other point? Look, I, I think that would be great. But that's not really the world that we're living in, right, Anya? Like this is not a conversation about who would I, Brianna Joy Gray, pick to be the perfect of the ideal representative of the left. I mean, I've tried to have that conversation. You know, I tried to have that conversation when I had RBN on a couple of months ago, and we very quickly got derailed into a Marianne conversation. Well, let's but, talk about let's talk about the political reality. Let, let's if we want to talk about it and like the sort of like this is the political reality sort of. What is the political reality of the left's obligation to electoral politics at this point? Isn't it well, not well, we to talk pull about people it. away from the duopoly? We and talk if, about if we're doing something the, that's not that, it feels like a waste of time. We, we talk about that all, the two, Anya, uh, that all the time too, Anya, and here's where we've landed. If you believe that there is no candidate that you can personally support because of the value of foreign policy, the importance of foreign policy, I think that's com- a completely respectable position. And therefore, if your position is I'm going to sit out 2024 and not pay attention to the primary or... Um, support a third-party candidate, uh, vote for a third-party candidate in the general after the primary is over, all of those kinds of positions. I'm not even talking about all that. I think those discussions are are interesting. I think there's a fundamental, can you be taken seriously backing an unserious candidate? And I think Marion Williamson is an unserious candidate. And I think the reason for that is not, it's not just because somebody has bad opinions on foreign policy. Not everybody's informed about everything. But if we're looking, if we're being honest about a political candidate, her political instincts are fucking terrible when it comes to foreign policy. She takes the the CIA default status quo answer as the default and processes out criticism from there. That's just not somebody who there there are people in this chat who have more intense critique of like sort of the State Department narratives. I'm so sure like just as a I'm political sh- candidate, I'm sure this that's is a disaster. True, if you were working for Marianne Williamson, and she'd be stupid not to offer you a job. But I think you'd be kind of crazy to take it because you'd be putting out fires right, but, but every Anya, single day. So at a certain you... point, if we are going to, if we're going to say like, oh, this is the political reality, backing somebody who's just not fundamentally competent, I don't think makes the left look any better. Anya, like, Anya, you know neither I mean? you nor I work for Marianne Williamson. So I, hey, I you have a chance of working for Marianne. No, I don't. I'm not working for Marianne Williamson, Anya. No, actually, you have a actually, Anya, if you could just let me speak for a second, Anya. Okay, go ahead. Neither of us is working for Marion Williamson and in dealing with these hypotheticals is not useful. This is the only, I think we've been very, very clear here and no one is ever disagreeing with anyone who calls into this chat 
and raises their concerns, their constructive, concrete concerns about Marianne Williamson's foreign policy. I also very much respect everyone's choice not to work for her, vote for her, support her, tweet about her, do anything in the whole wide world. I am not pushing anything whatsoever. But I will lay out the reality. And the reality is that all the people that we are love in the world would be perfect avatars for a left perspective on foreign policy at the very least, don't seem to be running, don't seem to have announced their intention to run, etc. So the options are to just say, oh, well, there's no one who I think I can support in the primary and maintain self-respect, so I will not be participating in the primary. That is okay to do. That is perfectly okay to do. You can try to gather rally support behind a run Matthew Hole movement or a run so-and-so movement. That is also a perfectly fine thing to do. But I don't know what anybody wants for me to come on and say that they... They fundamentally think that Marianne Williamson is unserious. Okay, it's a free country. Don't vote for Marianne Williamson. But there are a lot of people who say, look, I can't make my ideal candidate run in the Democratic primary. I think we'd be better off as a country if Marianne Williamson had a, had a, a shot at at least elevating some of the domestic issues that are important to me and frankly being to the left of some of these jokers like Biden, even on the foreign policy stuff, even if she is inadequate in those regards. And if that's not you, I think that's fine. It doesn't have to be you. But a lot of people are going to say, hey, at the end of the day, if she's in this thing and able to move the conversation to the left, I might not vote for her in a general. I don't think that she's going to make it to the general. I would rather vote for my Green Party candidate in a general election who more accurately reflects my views. But I'm happy she's in this mix. And it sounds like that's just not you. And that's fine, right? Well, okay. so the issue then the issue becomes like one where like. We're talking, I feel like we're talking about this conversation through the lens of electoralism in a way that's just absurd. Because, okay, if she runs, what tangible benefit is her running actually going to get the left, especially if she's going to continue to double down on on the worst aspects of the Democratic Party, which are the fact that Biden is marching us towards really, really bad outcomes on foreign policy. And we need an anti war movement now. I'm sorry, Marion Williamson's not the one because she is just not fundamentally qualified to talk about these issues. So even her, like any small utility we get out of this, it has to be a candidate that is willing to at least put the anti-war movement in the public consciousness. And she's just not qualified to do that. And if at a certain point, if there's nobody qualified to do that, then we need to, that needs to be the point. All of you suck. Fuck all of you. But what, and we need but to, help we me need understand. To get to something that, and and Marion Williamson, if, she's, if she can't handle the pressure of what it would take to be endorsed in that type of arena, then I think we should tear her down. So what does that She's mean a to, to, to tear her down? What What do you... I, I think mean, we should make her a joke like we made other candidates a fucking joke. Like who? Whatever that, whatever that takes. Who Who did we... And who's the we that we made? Who do we make a joke Bernie and who's the we? Look, Bernie 2020, the memes were a big reason why the campaign was as strong as it was. Because let's be honest, the memes for Bernie 2020 were pretty good. And we clowned on Elizabeth Warren and we clowned on a lot of people. And I think that, you know, like I, I'm, I'm being kind of like jokey here, but what I'm saying is, is that we really like the idea that we have to even accept, accept Marianne Williamson as somebody on the left, when I don't think she even qualifies considering her foreign policy is not bad, like atrocious, like one of the worst, just because she's uncritically believing shit that like even these evil fucks in like Washington don't actually believe it's propaganda. I think there's a, there's just a lack of political literacy. And there's also like a certain point, like if we're backing unserious candidates, it it makes the, just because you're trying to pursue 
this Bernie 2020 movement that didn't actually pan out instead of learning from those things, learning that Bernie's. I'm sorry, but what, what am I doing? I, I'm just trying to, I'm a little confused. I'm trying to pursue this Bernie 2020 movement. How? What, I'm saying that a lot of people who call it, not you, I'm thinking about like Tosin or other people who call in in support of this, feel like they're trying to catch this Bernie 2020 wave. And they, they categorize it by saying, well, if she's running, we can't sit out or blah, blah, blah. Like, inherent that there has to be a candidate just because people felt like they could No, no, but I don't think that anyone is saying that. And correct me if I'm I don't wrong, think they're saying that because the I, don't, I, think, I don't think they're being honest. But, but, but let me just clarify. I don't think what people are saying is we have to have Marianne. What people are saying is if Marianne's the only one who's out there and I see, and I respect that you feel The only one out there what? But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I see, and I respect that you might feel differently, a tangible benefit in her running then I am going to support that to get those tangible benefits out because it's going to happen with or without me. It's going to happen. That's the, that's the incrementalist not, argument. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's an incrementalist argument. Yeah. That participating and what is fundamentally a waste of time for small domestic, for, for small gains domestically is going when to, you're saying it's a waste of time. Well, it is. Historically, it's going to be a waste of time because well, she's not, well, even, no, the, Anya, she's not you, even the candidate who is uniquely equipped to do it. Cause Bernie, well, why is it a waste of time? For someone, for someone in the chat, Tosin or whomever it is, to ignore Marianne Williamson and then passively go to the polls and vote for her in a primary, it doesn't seem to me, to the extent that that's a waste of somebody's time, it seems to me to be a very marginal waste of time and resources. And it's hard for me to see what the objection is, even if the upside of her running is I mean, infinitesimally small. I think if you're Wait voting a in the Democratic primary, that you've already wasted your time. But on your, so I think you, you should be participating in the primaries the, of third parties. You were presuming a lot, and all the things of which we talked about on this on this show, and which are still unknowns. So one, we don't know if she's going to run as a Democrat or as a third party candidate. Two, we don't know if she's runs as a Democrat if she's willing to do the dirty break or not. Three. Even people who have been very critical of electoralism, um, like Nick uh, from RBN, have made a compelling case for how they were radicalized by participating in the Bernie 2016 or Bernie 2020 race. Nick talks about how knocking doors in 2016 really informed his political perspective. And, and people, I note from last week, somebody said the RBN people wouldn't be the ones all getting on board with this Marianne sort of hypothetical. That's what I think. Uh, that, but we don't need to, we and, don't and need here's to... the thing. Those are the, those are the people who are donating. Those are the people who were out there on the streets hitting the ground for Bernie. So, I mean, if you don't have them, then you don't have a realistic okay. shot of winning. Anya, I, you don't need to explain to me what RBN thinks. I have had on this show and on Bad Faith Podcast lengthy, substantive, informative, that's, and That's just what I think, knowing their background. I'm with not, RBN, yeah, but I, that's not necessary, because we all know what RBN thinks, because we have all been participating in this dialogue with them for months now, and it's been very well appreciated. But my point is contrary to yours, that despite RBN, or I don't want to speak for all of them at once, but let's say Nick, not being especially supportive of this kind of an approach, he would still, and has, in fact, admitted that there was a positive outcome for him in his own political trajectory from participating in the Bernie 2016 campaign. I say that to say only this, even if you believe there are very marginal positive benefits from a Marianne run, and you personally don't want to give any of your time or money or even tweets to supporting that effort, I respect that. But given that you, it takes, you know, there is some potential marginal benefit Having some what is person this benefit, on the, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally about to tell you, Anya. Okay. That was the next words out of my mouth. Sorry, go ahead. 
given that there's some hypothetical benefit of having someone on the stage with Joe Biden to have him not just coast to re-election unchallenged, but to have an actual debate with someone there calling him out on any number of lies, both foreign who and Who agrees domestic. with him on sending money to Nazis, who agrees with him on, uh, on uh, the Palestine stuff, who agrees with him on all the shit that the left actually needs to make a distinction from um, the liberals. At a certain on. point, it becomes, it becomes a little absurd to be having this conversation. No, because, because if Marianne Williamson Willis- uh, was talking about the LGBT Anya. community, the same way she was talking about the Palestinian Anya. community, you're you would arguing with, conversation we, to begin with. Anya, you're arguing with nobody who was here. You're just arguing no, about the no, air. No, 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 no. It's a hundred percent. There's a hundred percent progressive, except for Palestine people, and those people. Anya, people you're not listening. Marianne Williamson. You are not listening. And you have people who support Marianne Williamson. Anya, so please that. stop. Anya, I can agree with every single thing that you're saying, and you will not accept it. I'm what telling you, you that even if Mar- no, Anya, please, even if Marianne Williamson is a hundred percent what you're saying on foreign policy and agrees with, with Joe Biden 100% on a foreign policy basis. Other people who disagree with you, who feel differently than you, and I need you to open your brain up to acknowledge who the possibility on the foreign policy of people, thing? stop, of people feeling differently than you, even if you are completely right about Marianne and foreign policy. Other people still believe there's value to her standing on the debate stage with Joe Biden and saying, Medicare for all is a human right. You lied about canceling student debt. We need a national housing guarantee and on and on and on. Now, you might think it doesn't matter that she gets in the so debate fuck stage. It, let's vote for Trump. Let's go. You might not think it matters that she's in the debate stage bringing up those issues because at the end of the day, foreign policy is your priority. I respect that position, but I also think it is a perfectly logical and morally supported position to say, you know what, I wish Marianne would also draw those contrasts with Biden on foreign policy. I will push her and criticize her for not doing so. But to the extent that she's going to be on that debate stage with no support from me, none of my monetary support or taking anything from me, it's better that she's there than she's not. And at very least, I'm glad that that happened, even though I personally am not going to support her in any, in any kind of way. And it's hard for me to understand why you wouldn't just passively take that win. Because I think Marianne Williamson are, is somebody who ultimately should be opposed. I think that she's a net negative. Okay. Well, then you can oppose her. And you can and try I, to convince other people to oppose her with you. I'm not where you are, but it's a free country, you know? Well, I, I think, but I think that part of the reason that people aren't, aren't there is that there's still this belief that we're, they're going to catch this Bernie wave and that there's going to be this big value even that we're going to see outcomes that are different than what we saw in 2016 and 2020. But the, the actual tangible reality of her running doesn't change that in any way. So at a certain point, what are we doing? Well, we're not doing are anything. Are gonna be, Marianne's are doing something. Donate, people are going to be donating. Why? You know what I mean? Like, what, what is... Then, then don't, don't donate, Anya. And tell your friends not to donate. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tell you. Don't, don't donate. Not, if you're not willing to put your money behind a candidate, then at a certain point, shouldn't we go for a hard Dem exit? I don't know what this candidate? we is. I don't know what this we is. Well, when I, say, when I say we, I'm talking about, like, just generally, like, if you think the leftists as a community should have a united electoral strategy, that's something that you believe, and that we're the collective we then I think that we need to look at some hard tree. And if that's not the case, that's not the case. But then we need to look I mean, at some I hard electoral tree. I can't force anybody truth. to run. So I'm, if not you, ask, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm just if, saying. If you have someone that you think, if you want to have a draft Matthew Ho movement or a draft 
whatever. I can't even think of whomever else it would be. But why is it just who cares? We know that the system is bullshit. We know that. Well, you just said, I'm sorry, you just said the left needs to have an electoral strategy. That's why I'm saying that. Well, if you think that we don't. That doesn't mean we need a candidate. That I, I keep saying, and this is the same problem that people make in New York. They go, well, Kathy Hochul is the only one running, so we're all going to back Kathy Hochul. All the DSA people back Kathy Hochul. And then it becomes this thing of, well, there's no alternative because we never even try to make an alternative. If there's nobody good running, then shouldn't just our only electoral outcome want to be peeling people away from the duopoly? That's what I'm saying. And if okay. that's not the case, if you don't think that's the case, then no, I think, I, that I think that's that great. I think that's great. But while everyone's doing that, there is going to be a presidential election in 2024. Okay. So why do we have to, why, why do we have to have a candidate? I'm, I'm a literally a don't. Literally, okay. you can come. Like, I keep saying so, this. It's so really making me crazy. Wait a minute, Anya. Let's have that conversation. This, this is making me absolutely crazy. I said this to, I had the same argument with Chris Hedges and Shama Sawant over a year ago. You're oh. literally allowed to say I don't want to participate in 2024, and I at no point will argue with you about it. Just go away. Just ignore it. I will not. I promise you I don't give a shit. Stay home. It's none of my business. That's a perfectly reasonable position for someone to take, that they don't believe in electoralism, that they don't see any candidates that are worth their while, that even participating in the system makes people feel like electoralism is going to be some outlet for the left and actually succeed for them in a way that is not actually going to materialize and that it's a distraction and that we shouldn't pay any attention to it. I see that argument. I respect that argument. And I will why not be arguing with anybody about that. Why, 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 is, why is that argument binary when we can say, okay, why don't we create Babe, a platform? There's no binary why argument. A pl- why don't we create a platform and say, listen, if you're a candidate, you have to, this is the new standard. The Bernie <laughs> platform is not going to cut it. And then we try to force candidates to meet that standard. But I, I, don't I, I, su- really I support think that you in that effort. I, you should go talk to the DSA about it and, and see if they can mount well, a I have, I have talked to I have talked to DSA people about embracing that those kinds of strategies. And there's ultimately, like I said, like locally, there's no stomach for it because people are afraid that like they're not participating if that they decide to not necessarily endorse a candidate, but make their presence known either way. Even though I think in Casey Tenet's union, um, I think what they did is basically said, we're going to endorse you, but then we're going to basically be against you if, that, if, if you cross us or anything like that. I think we need a more adversarial national project. That's I, I'm pretty sure I've raised the need for that and agree entirely in many conversations here and elsewhere. And, and, I, and I really do hope that you bring up the fact that Marianne Williamson is kind of a fucking idiot on foreign policy. Like, not in those words, obviously. I, I, if you do look, interview Anya, her again, I do I think Anya, that you really when you started talking, does, who does need to bring the hammer on her because nobody else is really going to... Anya, when you started talking, you fight. said you were going to be specific about the critiques of Marianne Williamson and I've let you go on saying just that she's a fucking idiot and blah, blah, blah. I think there are real critiques to be made and I would, because I would, I would hope... Because her instinct is to back in Russia Russia, it's to back the CIA backed like the, the I, yeah. Anyway. I would prefer if so next Palestine, time you come to this podcast, uh, Anya. I, I can pull you. On, I can pull up receipts, but here's the yeah, thing: is that Anya, she's the time for that tweets, has worst tweets too. I think that you next time should call in. Should call in and explicitly talk about those receipts, and then we could have a conversation that informs the group and moves us forward. That is not what this feels like. I got to say at this does, point, so I got to move support, on to the rest of the queue. She sending arms to Ukraine. She has talked about it on Twitter. She did not support pulling out of Afghanistan like we've talked about. 
right? She did not uh, support. Like, I, I don't want to have to have this conversation again because it makes me feel like no, I'm no, defending no, Marianne. Yeah. But no, be no, specific. No, no, no. She didn't say, because, I don't want to withdraw from Afghanistan. She was getting calls from people on the ground, she was, journalists, no, no, etc. No, no, no. She was saying in like 2019, I can find Facebook uh, posts of saying, oh, well, I wouldn't want to pull out of Afghanistan until we talk to the women. Of course, the whole, I don't think women appreciate being killed or raped by U.S. soldiers, but that wasn't part of the conversation. Like, this was something that was, she was talking about in 2019. All right, Anya, um, I've got to move on to other callers. All I'm just saying is that the... the like, I understand, Anya, but there's certain point, other callers have had some self-consciousness of how long they've been talking. They need to move on to other people and share the floor. They have cut themselves off without me having to intervene because they want to be respectful of everyone else in the room. And you've been kind of doing the exact opposite. So with all due respect... You know, we've had a, an interesting conversation. I appreciate what you brought to the table, but it feels like we're going around in circles. And I hope you do come back again and we can have a different kind of conversation that's specifically going through, combing through Marion's record, if in fact she does run. But I gotta say, a lot of you guys seem to be weirdly triggered by Marion Williams in, in a way that doesn't entirely seem proportionate to who she is or what threat she actually poses. And that is its own kind of beast. But thank you for calling in. And I'm going to move on to Andrew. Hi, Bree. Uh, hey, Andrew. What's on your mind? Um, on my mind is that I don't really care about January 6th in general, but I okay. do care about February 5th, uh, 19th. Are you aware of the upcoming event on February 19th in D.C., the anti-war rally? It's going to be going no. on. No. Talk about it. Okay, well, Nick Brana from the uh, People's Party and Angela McGirdle from the, uh, she's the national chair of the Libertarian Party, basically unified the left and right wings of the anti-establishment to uh, host a anti-war, they're going to attempt to host an anti-war rally in D.C. I think it's called the Rage Against the Wars uh, rally. I know the website, if you want to look up more information about it, is uh, Rage Against War. Dot com, I believe. Uh, let me. Okay. I could. Right. I don't want the app to crash or whatever. But you should be able to find it easily enough. Uh, Rage against. Oh, the did someone bring this up the last time? Actually, I'm Wait. not sure. I, I, I've been uh, delinquent. You know, not not listening in. <laughs> but oh, uh, it's February 19th. Meeting up at the Lincoln Memorial, and then they're going to walk to the uh, White House and deliver their demands. And I just, uh, I think people should know about it. It's coming up pretty soon. And uh, I like the idea behind it of unifying the left and the right. And uh, it's obviously for a good cause, uh, in my opinion, at least. I'm sure it will get some opposition. But uh, the, the general principles, there's a long list of things they want. But other than uh, ending the war in Ukraine and stopping the aid, essentially, demanding an end to military aid to Ukraine and other things that are also calling for freeing Julian Assange mm -hmm. and cutting back the Pentagon budget, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I just uh, thought I'd bring that up because that's really what I'm interested in. And like you said, talking about opportunities to do things. I, I think uh, I was actually kind of wondering if you would be interested in, I don't know if anyone's reached out to you, Jimmy Dore speaking, um, Scott Horton from the Libertarians is going to be there. I was kind of surprised that no one's reached out to you about it, actually. Not that I know of, um, but it looks like an interesting event. I'd have to look a little bit more closely 
about who's involved. Certainly the bullet points that you have articulated are ones that I support. Um, but I'm glad you brought it to my attention and I'll keep an eye out so I don't miss any emails in case someone actually has reached out. But thank you for that, Andrew. Yeah, no problem. I hope your night goes a little better. <laughs> no worries. We're having, we're having fun here. Keep the faith. Thank you, Andrew. You too. Bye-bye. I'm going to bring Tosin up um, just because his name was invoked. <laughs> um, and I feel like he should be able to uh, weigh in. Tosin, what's on your mind tonight? Bonsoir. Like, I Bonsoir. Think, I think I just wanted to, I don't know. I think at, the, at that moment, I probably wanted to respond, but I have nothing else to add. I think from my perspective, if you do not rally around Marion Williamson, mm-hmm. which is fair enough, I don't want to do, what's the alternative? I think the absence of an alternative means the corporatists will always win. We cannot abdicate our, um, I, yeah, I said it last time, we cannot abdicate our own duty and not show up. Because if we don't show up to the table, who will fill the table? Biden will fill the table. Tosin, you went a little bit muffled there. Hello? Is this better? Hi. This is you now. You're nice and clear, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think... Um, I, I, don't, I can't remember what I was saying, but I think ultimately there, there needs to be an alternative. Because when... In, 20, in, in 2016, before 2016, who, who believed in universal health care? Mm-hmm. Like, seriously, who Who did? In 2016, who believed in like student loan cancellation? Who did? Mm-hmm. D- do you know what I mean? Yeah. Over the last four years, the like, like the, the the fact that um, people can now openly say they're anti-capitalist, that's not something that happened in 20 prior to 2015. Like, it, like you, you couldn't put that on your Twitter bio. Mm-hmm. But now it's we're moving the we. It's incrementalism, yeah, absolutely. But we're moving the conversation forward, and I feel like we need to have that. We we need to have that mentality, and it's perfectly fine if we don't want to support Marion Williamson. But what is what is the next project? Who's the person that we want to rally around in twenty sixty um, in in twenty twenty four? Otherwise, we're going to be stuck with the CIA rat. What's, what's that fool's name? Buttigieg or whatever his name is. We're going to be stuck with the fake Native American lady. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, we need to get serious. We should not be afraid of power. Um, and and you, I, I, I get where I, Anya's coming from in terms of foreign policy. But ultimately, 68,000 people, this is prior to before the Rona ruined all our lives, 68,000 uninsured people die every year because there is no universal health care. That is important. We know thousands of people that have medical debts. In the richest country in the entire world, that's not a thing here in the UK. Like it's it's crazy that we don't we don't want to. One of the things that Marion Williamson talks about is ameliorating human suffering wherever you can. Sixty-eight thousand people dying every year. That's not a small number. And the fact that we can just throw that away because of vibes, we don't like whatever she tweeted at um at um what's his name at at Aramate or whomever. Like, that, in my view, that doesn't make us as serious as we really need to be. And it's yeah, perfectly well, fine. And you can well, have a position. At, sorry. I'm yeah, no, just, in, in defense of Anya a little bit, I don't think it's just vibes. I think that people who have the foreign policy concerns have legitimate concerns. And I'm, I'm not trying to diminish those. I'm just trying to drill down, practically speaking, to what people want. Anya seems to believe that Marianne Williamson is an active harm, not just that she's not helpful, but that she is an act harm such that she should be opposed and defeated by the left. I think that is not credible. That just sounds 
you would have to make a better case than Anya was making for me to believe that that is true. I think that there are always concerns about like sheep herding and all that stuff, but that ends up happening when someone like wins or gets a big coalition together and then says, go vote for the Democratic Party. It's not clear to me that Marianne's the type of person to say, go ahead and vote for Biden, you know, but Trump did it. If she is, then we should criticize that, right? But I take your point entirely that Bernie made a certain political horizon possible, pushed the Overton window, made people feel like the discourse moved dramatically to the left and the, the world of what was possible expanded. COVID expanded it further and validated a lot of the things Bernie was saying about what the government could do for people. And now we're poised to keep pushing and keep that, that spirit alive. And I do worry about backsliding if we don't have periodic folks on the main stage willing to say X, Y, and Z. So maybe Marianne won't say any of the good stuff. Maybe she'll be a failure, but it is difficult for me just to see what's the harm in her trying, especially like the harm with Bernie was that he took all of these poor people's money and then bent the knee. Yeah. If you don't give money to Marianne, if you go in this clear eyed or if you give her money and you know that there's a possibility that it won't work out anyway and the same thing's going to happen to you, you know, I, it's just hard for me to see the downside. That, that's all I'm saying. And I'm not, I'm not evangelizing. I'm not asking anybody to do anything. I'm just, I, I just really don't understand. Like if she's willing to go out there and fight and say that some things that I agree with and no one else on that stage is willing to say anything that I agree with, it just seems to me obviously in that good. So why look, why look a gift horse in the mouth? Now if I were her, and, and I was looking down the barrel of a run and saw that it was going to be so difficult from my own left flank, I would either adjust some of my foreign policy positions and try to earn the left's trust, which I hope she does, or I would say, well, fuck it. <laughs> this is, seems like a thankless job. I'm not doing it anyway. And then we could all sit here smug and happy in the fact that we will have the option to vote for Joe Biden or not participate in the Democratic primary. But like, that's the world we live in. Like, I think it was Dylan that mentioned in the chat before, um, like, there is this sort of vitriol that she gets that in my head, like, I just, I just don't get. Like, we didn't have this same amount of energy for, for Bernie, and who also had some sort of questionable takes when it comes to foreign policy. Um, yeah, it just, it just seems quite weird. But anyway, to, to maybe bolster Anya's point a little bit, yeah, we should go in for 2024 clear eyed and this goes back to what um not cause uh, not cousin eric <laughs> mentioned the last time he called <laughs> supporting her she needs to make it clear that yeah she will do a dirty break she will do a dirty break if mm -hmm. you know if they mess with her just the same way at, as trump did back in 2015 um and everyone in the republic party lost their minds um like she needs to make that clear she needs to make that commitment like you said she needs to adjust her foreign policy takes um her stance make it very very clear so yeah like we, we can make this candidate better like I, I just i cannot understand this point of view that oh we should just abandon it i said it last time but the difference between a good i'm probably preaching now but the difference between a good samaritan and a conscious samaritan is the conscious samaritan thinks more structurally we, we're not going to mutual aid ourselves out of, you know, out of defeating capitalism. We, we need to make more structural changes, which means we need to be serious about power. We need to be, we need to be able to manipulate these politicians the same way they try to manipulate us for votes. 
Yeah. I mean, look, what this feels like is everyone being upset that it, the, the organization that needed to happen to have the candidate that you wanted didn't happen. That the, you know, organization to withhold votes and make Joe Biden actually do something halfway decent or true to his campaign promises isn't there. And so now this just, it feels like, like, I'm not, and again, I, I don't know many, how many times I can say this. I think there are legitimate critiques of Marianne's foreign policy positions. It also feels like the way, the reason everyone seems to have such a reaction to her, it feels like it's not even about her because she says so many things that Bernie also said. Like, I'm not trying to drag Bernie either, but like, that's just the truth. Let's drug him. Let's drug him and, in. And, and like, like, yeah, why so, but, but people were happy to vote for Bernie. And if Bernie ran again, they wouldn't be bringing any of this heat. I'm sorry. The same people who always criticize Bernie's foreign policy would criticize Bernie's foreign policy. But the millions of people who happily backed Bernie, despite all of that, because he was clearly offering some better alternative, you know, there's a difference between this and Marianne. And what I think it is, is everyone's kind of grieving not having done what needed to have been done to be in a better position now going into 2024. And we could, in fact, be planning right now, 2024 is still a year away. So there's a world where we're instead of like, like I, I wish we were having a conversation where it's like, this is a list of things that we need to try to push Marianne on. Okay, and then I can go and try to do something with that, try to have her on and do something with that. But I gotta tell you, this Marianne is evil, you know, I, no one said that, but you know what I mean? like. Well, they fucking moron or whatever it was that Anya said. That seems less constructive to me, I gotta say. <laughs> or or alternatively, screw Marianne, ignore Marianne. Okay, Marianne's running makes you realize how much better we better we need a left alternative. Let's talk to Matthew Hill about what his plans are. Let's talk to, you know, uh, Andrew Yang about how much the Ford Party could support a left candidate with their financial resources. Let's exactly. talk about the Green Party's candidate selection and whether or not they would ever consider running their Green Party person on a Democratic Party ticket so that they could get on the debate stage. You know, like, let's actually have a constructive, uh, strategic conversation. But it does feel a little bit like if you're trying to convince me that Marianne was wrong in Afghanistan, you don't need to. Like, no one needs to call it and shout at me that Marianne Williamson is too credulous with respect to foreign policy, deep state, all of that stuff. Like, I, I get it. It's, it's true. But now what? What do you want to do about it? I, I don't mean that like derisively, like literally. I just mean like we can talk about what to do about it. Even th I like the the example you give of the Ford Party as well, because every time you like talk about trying to interview Andrew Yang, for instance, people are like, "Oh, that's unserious." But it's like, no, we're trying to use his platform. We're trying to use the fact that if he's obviously if he puts aside um, corporate cash and stuff, we're trying to elevate the, the the sense that oh yeah, we need UBI. We're trying to elevate the sense that we need rank rank choice voting, like that. Like it's strategic. Like you know, we're we're thinking bigger. We're trying to use him. Like he's not using it. We're trying to use him. In, in that sense, and I think we should be able to use these politicians to achieve our sort of ultimate goal. Otherwise, we're just going to sit here and, I guess, be happy that we're criticizing capitalism, but we're not actually doing anything tangible to, like, change the structures. Um, I don't know. But, yeah, that, that, yeah, it's not as coherent. But, um, yeah, that's that was all I was going to say whilst Ayan was on, having her... Yeah. 
moment. Yeah. Well, look, I appreciate you both calling in. I think that Anya's perspective reflects, you know, a real frustration that a lot of people have. And I'm, and I'm glad, you know, they came on and articulated it. But, you know, I, if it, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to co-sign Miriam's a moron because I don't think she's a moron. I don't think that's constructive. You're allowed to think that, but say your piece and let's move on because you're not going to get me to agree. I'm not agreeing with that because it's fundamentally not true. It's, I'm sorry, she's not stupid. <laughs> she's just not. You're allowed to disagree with people without calling them names or insulting their intelligence or thinking that they're unserious. And I think that in a world where you actually want to get something and you want to move people, that approach just I find to be really, really off-putting. So that's just... That's just me. I appreciate you coming up, Tosin, and uh, keep the faith. All right, Jonathan, how are you doing, my friend? So far, so good. I actually called in to talk about the episode, but uh, <laughs> uh, all the Marianne yeah, stuff last time. <laughs> but uh, the uh, I will say, like, I don't I don't have particularly strong feelings on the issue. But I will say anything that creates drag on people like Joe Biden doing exactly what they want to do unopposed is good. And the point of view that uh, somehow that does more harm kind of like strikes me as the sort of doomerism that you you saw with the uh, anti-force the vote crowd saying that a vote on Medicare for all that didn't result in a win would set us back 30 years, which seems like a ridiculous thing to assert. And I've seen no no convincing evidence that it's the case. In mm-hmm. fact, the Republicans seem to know for a fact it's not the case because they propose messaging bills all the time. How many times have they tried to repeal Obamacare, for instance? Mm-hmm. I think like four, five, six, something like that. They don't seem to care that it mm-hmm. never wins. Yeah, but I think anyway. we all understood, like obviously Tulsi was a my candidate and there were plenty of emerging criticisms of her during the primary even before some of the things, you know, the, the choices that she's made more recently, she wasn't my candidate. But when she took out Kamala Harris, God bless her. It was a wonderful day for us all, you know, and she served a purpose. You know, Elizabeth Warren certainly wasn't my candidate either, but she very effectively took out Mike Bloomberg and that was a good moment. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're looking at a, a pinball machine of reacting candidates in debaters and factors that play in all sorts of ways and if if there's a if there's a a bomb that hits that helps your side like just take the win and i think that is very possible that marianne williamson could like as you put it be a drag on joe biden force joe biden into some more honest moments i mean i can't think of something worse than joe biden running unopposed like what a right. opportunity I agree. Like that's. I'm glad we see eye to eye on that one because, uh, yeah, I I, 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 I prefer that Amy Klobuchar run against Joe Biden than Joe Biden run unopposed. Right, and that's like that's been the whole problem that we had with Bernie after the election was the fact that he bent the knee, and all the people that we expected to create drag on Joe Biden doing what Joe Biden does just you know kiss the royal pinky ring and and let him let him do it, and there was none mm-hmm. of that drag. And, you know, frankly, uh, you know, I, anyway, that's that's what I had to say about that. I had called in to talk about the episode because, well, firstly, the, the episode was fabulous. I don't 
necessarily uh, completely see eye to eye with Jen on that thing because my experience with my Republican relatives was a little different from hers because my Mm -hmm. Republican relatives are still in the Trump camp for very interesting reasons. Uh, They, they don't, they don't care about January 6th. Like, obviously they don't think it was a good thing, but they don't care. But the reason why they support Trump over DeSantis is a basic policy reason that uh, I thought was fascinating, which is, uh, you know, they are now endorsing, um, you know, what used to be considered, uh, you know, left policy of like import substitution, industrialization, industrial policy, things like that. But they're calling it economic nationalism. And that's why they prefer Trump over somebody like DeSantis or any traditional Republicans. And these are in hard... Republican country, that's Tom DeLay's old district, and there's a lot of people who agree with them on that. And they, like, were instinctively repulsed by the January 6th hearings, firstly because of Adam Schiff, who, you know, Frank, let's be honest, that boy has cried wolf way too many times. Like, if Trump went down for everything Adam Schiff said he was going to go down for, he would have lasted, like, three months in office. Okay, first it was his income taxes, then it was Russiagate, then it was, uh, you know, the Ukraine thing, then it was Russiagate again, then it was, uh, like, the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, this guy, uh, essentially, uh, you know, people were primed to basically think that what Adam Schiff had to say on the matter, and, you know, the whole uh, January 6th committee business was kind of a nothing burger and they also saw of course that uh of course the lower level people were severely punished they saw all the stuff with the fbi informants planted amongst the january 6 rioters and so they were they were basically primed to think of it as a nothing burger but on the substantive point they they are embracing for whatever twisted logic a lot of policies that you know could be seen as um economic leftist, which I was like, okay, you know, as a matter of fact, you know, we have something called import substitution industrialization, and uh, a bunch of Republicans back in the day tried to say that was commie stuff, but Mm -hmm. uh, the North Koreans and the Israelis seem to have uh, built themselves up from a third world backwater to uh, modern tech powerhouses using exactly that kind of policy. So, you know what, however you got there, you know, I'm just tickled pink that uh, you guys are, are uh, you know, agreeing with me on something. But that sort of thing was the substantive reason why they still support Trump, not because they think January 6th was good or they believe the election was stolen or anything like that. They, uh, they don't care much for uh, DeSantis, who seems much more like a traditional Republican to them, and they don't care... Uh, you know, frankly, even a lot of people in this, uh, you know, southeast Texas area that has been very, very hard Republican for many years um, don't especially care about a lot of these social issues. They don't care about, you know, DeSantis's reverse freedom rides. They don't care about, uh, you know, groomers and, and drag queen story hour. They don't care about a lot of that stuff. And a lot of them. You know, they'll watch something like Tucker 
on mm-hmm. Fox, but the rest of the time they're going to things like, uh, you know, OANN or Newsmax or something like that. Some of these alternative right wing news sources that were much more unabashedly pro Trump. And because um, I, I know we covered at some point, um, the readjustment that even people like Tucker, the idea that they're defending Trumpism while distancing themselves from Trump, increasingly saying positive things about DeSantis. Uh, Tucker was asked about who he would support at the, whatever that last turning point conference, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago. And he filibustered a little bit and said how much Trump is great and how much everybody owes to Trump without like really clearly answering the question. So I mean, are 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 there actually are the conservative news networks still really standing by Trump, or are they hedging or openly supporting DeSantis? I mean, I I I don't watch a lot of that stuff myself. I'd have to ask my parents about that, but I know that they're basically still in the Trump camp, and it's less an issue of a cult of personality the way it once I once would have thought it was and more about, uh, you know, kind of Trumpism, but they don't think that DeSantis represents Trumpism. And they are now kind of all in on the Trumpism, at least the rhetorical Trumpism um, in, in a way that they haven't been before. And I'm finding their politics much less predictable than it used to be. Mm-hmm which I think is also interesting. That's another thing you're finding amongst uh, these various Republican populations is they're starting to fragment politically. And they aren't, it's not this this neat set of political beliefs that you can just pick out of a hat anymore uh, in ways that it was just 10 years ago, where you, like if somebody identified as a Republican, you could tell every single thing that they believed, you know, just read it off a list. And they're like, yup, 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 yup. That's not a thing anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that for sure is true, and I and I I, I want to validate that in 2016, reporters really missed how much of Trump's pitch was this economic populism critique of NAFTA stuff. Um, there, there was this kind of smug presumption that normal voters didn't get that stuff, and normal voters didn't care about that stuff, and I don't think that was true. I am wondering, though, you know, how clearly your parents and family are articulating what it is. I mean, that that is what it is about Trump that is appealing to them and what DeSantis is specifically saying in the alternative. Like how how much is this that your parents perhaps have a specific perspective or an industry perspective or something like that that makes them care much uh, care more? And how much is this like a, a, an, an easy to identify difference between Trump and DeSantis because what was what was clear about Hillary was that she was there for all of the bad stuff and vocally supported it along with her husband back in the 90s so there was a really clear contrast with her and Trump on a lot of that stuff with I, I just maybe I haven't been following and listening to DeSantis as closely but I wonder if you can you know confirm that there really is a difference in content on these issues yeah. between those two men I, like I'm not Sure that there, like, there is necessarily, uh, but DeSantis, I think, has not said a lot about broader, more global issues and free trade issues and things like that. Um, you know, he has said, you know, some vaguely anti-communist stuff that would appeal to Florida mm-hmm. denizens, like the Venezuelan and Cuban population, 
but that's not something that resonates with my parents. You know, my dad uh, has ties to uh, Romania. He has ties to Israel. He has ties to uh, the history of those two places. And uh, so he, you know, for example, is uh, aware of what happened in to Eastern Europe and in Eastern Europe in the in the 90s. And uh, that's, you know, something that uh, that resonates with him. A lot of the, the internationalist kind of globalist um, bent that has, um, you know, that's, that's something the establishment has been pushing for decades economically is something that he finds repulsive. Mm-hmm. And that's something that Trump talks a lot about and DeSantis doesn't. And uh, that's, you know, theoretically, I'm sure DeSantis could change that and maybe the equation would change. But at this point, it's that that aspect is something that they're they're attached to about Trump. And they have kind of a much more of a hodgepodge of views on the issues. They seem to have less of an anchor, I think, because Trump for four years had no particular anchor himself. And so you start to see a much more natural, uh, you know, gravitation using other uh, mental shortcuts or, you know, what they, what Kahneman would call uh, heuristics and biases to, to, uh, you know, different lenses to process these issues through. And, you know, you're seeing a lot more, uh, you know, kind of complicated feelings on these matters, which, uh, you know, I think could theoretically in the long run be a good thing, but I don't, I don't know what it means for the Republican contest in 2024. But I do know that that's why they don't care much about January 6th. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is, that is interesting. I mean, when you say they don't care much, do, would you agree? I mean, cause Jen was saying that when it comes up, her Republican family members are kind of embarrassed about it and that they might not I bring that- it up like, Hey, like we want to talk about January 6th, but it's enough to make them, not want to publicly support Trump anymore. Well, I think there were a lot of things that Trump did during his presidency that even Trump supporters would roll their eyes and say, I wish he would knock that off. And that is like, that's a long standing thing. And at the end of the day, I think that was another thing that a lot of, you know, the kind of uh, supposed resistance liberal crowd overlooked. They're like, I don't understand. All these Trump supporters must be bad people because they're not willing to repudiate Trump because he did this bad thing. Mm-hmm. And I, the people that I talk to living in Republican country are like, yes, I realize he did a bad thing. That was a bad thing. I don't approve of that. But the overall mission is, is what's important. And I have my priorities here and he's advancing my priorities mm-hmm. and Republicans, uh, you know, they're, they're more strategic than people give them credit for, in a sense, at least around here. And mm-hmm. they know, they like, at the end of the day, they know all of this stuff is bad. They might even think that it's bad, and I wish he hadn't done that. But they're just like, okay, this is important, this isn't, and I'm focused on the mission here. And that's, I think, what how they see January 6th. They're, they're not seeing, uh, you know, kind of the details that, um, that Jen was bringing up, because as you pointed out, it takes a long time to parse and explain those things. And frankly, what they saw was 
you know, a riot, something unsuccessful, and some ridiculous shenanigans that, you know, kind of looked almost comical when you've got, uh, you know, when you're looking at, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani gesticulating, uh, saying ridiculous stuff, farting on camera multiple times, um, you know, like all kind, like it, it, it didn't look like something that they they felt was particularly scandalous in the way that Jen framed it, and you know, they see it as again as a nothing burger, and I think a lot of people, even people on the left, see it that way as well. Yeah, I, that's that's useful perspective. I'm looking at you know, there's that um, holding Biden accountable account, and they just tweeted a um, a poll showing that Biden's at 44.2% against Trump's 41.9% and remarking that it's incredible that he's still within the margin of error after having two years of congressional majorities and all of the things, um, all of the impeachments and the hearings and the whatnots. And I, I think that I did a radar to this effect. It, you know, it wasn't one of my more popular radars, but I'm interested to see how it will hold up historically because when Trump announced, everybody, including a lot of people in left media that I really respect, said that it was a low energy event and that he was done for and this was the age of DeSantis. And I don't know, man, Trump is older. I agree that he doesn't have the same spark that he used to, but he is a man animated by combat and I, he's good at TV and DeSantis is not. And I just think it's too unpredictable to be writing him off of this stage. And while I do think there are a lot of people like Jen's folks who want to return to normalcy, I think they will absolutely support Trump if he wins the primary and that DeSantis might not have the cakewalk that people are imagining for a whole host of reasons. So I appreciate you calling in, Jonathan. Yep, thanks for having me. All right, keep the faith. You do. Okay, I'm going to hop, hop, hop around a little bit as promised. And I'm going to go to, oh, this queue is long. Okay, let's go to Rusty with a Jar Jar Binks avatar. What's on your mind, Rusty? Oh, hey, can you hear me? I can. What's on your mind? Hey, oh, I just wanted to talk about today's episode with Jen. Yeah, shoot. Well, I was just, uh, I mainly wanted to comment on, like, uh, how it seems like most, like all that stuff with the electors and stuff was new to me, mm-hmm. but it just seemed like more of the conversation had had like in the past um, was more just demonizing the protest itself. <clears throat> oh, sorry, just a second. But yeah, uh, <clears throat> sorry, maybe I'm ill prepared for this. No, no, um, you're great. You're great. You're- you're, you're saying that previously you, the criticism you've seen is about the actual protesters and the storming of the Capitol and the lack of civility and the, you know, beating up of the police officers and stuff and how that's hypocritical for Republicans and generally bad. Um, but not yeah. the actual scheme to overturn the election results. And I, I agree most of that. I think the focus on the kind of trauma of the day led a lot of leftists, leftists who I like and respect and follow, to say, well, there was no real coup attempt. Um, the, you know, the fact that they had zip ties or whatever, whatever, maybe they didn't have zip ties. I know that story went back and forth and back and forth. But the idea that a couple of them were armed or had zip ties or 
whatever might have had some intention in their mind to find a congressperson and tie them up doesn't mean that there was any real danger in the electoral votes not being counted and cast and Biden being affirmed. But the plot in the, the days and weeks beforehand does shine somewhat of a different light on it, I think. And I'm looking forward to listening to Jen Briney's episode on her podcast when she fully unpacks um, the commission report. And so on two, one on one level, it's like, well, I don't like to be out of the loop. I don't like to feel so ignorant about something, especially when the mainstream is so invested in it. Also, if we want to have credibility with like normies and convince them that we have some shared interests here, I do think it probably behooves us to be a little bit more up to date on what everyone else is talking about, even if we disagree, because I would like our disagreements to be more informed, I guess. Yeah. And, and yeah, to me, a, a lot of it just seemed, it seemed like the whole rhetoric behind it was to make like, like occupying buildings taboo, almost like, like now I feel like after people went and uh, protested at the Capitol now, now, to me, I, I think that, like, sets a precedent now, and, like, that actually could make it taboo to, like, if people wanted to protest war or something. Or, or Well, it's already done, right? There's still gates all up around the Capitol. You're not allowed to go in. Well, between COVID policy and 1-6, your ability, and this might have changed more recently, but the last time I checked, the ability to just waltz in the Capitol like you used to be able to as, like, a public building is very much diminished. I think when we were when, during force the vote, there was a desire to protest in someone's office the way that AOC led the protest um, by sunrise at Nancy Pelosi's office on her first day in Congress. And you're like not able to do that without a permit now and to be without the invitation of a Congress member. So yeah, all of this stuff has really shut down people's access to Congress into certain forms of protest. Even the even the sleeping on the steps by Cori Bush and all of that, some people were making the argument that it was performative because she had to have gotten a permit to do that anyway. Um, so basically the Democrats allowed her to do the protest knowing that uh, the Supreme Court was going to overturn the moratorium anyway. I mean, I'm not saying that, that I know that to be true. I'm just saying that's the argument that's been made. Okay. So yeah, it, 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 it set us all, it set, every, it set protest movements back. Yeah, and it's a bummer to see, like, a lot of my more liberal friends or whatever to kind of pick up that narrative and then, I don't know, because the way, the way it looked, it's like people are taking selfies in the, like, you know, one one lady got killed, which was bad, but, but it, like, the stuff I saw, like, the guy putting his boots up on Nancy Pelosi's table or somebody taking selfies. So the way to demonize that so much, but then, I don't know, it just seems like movements in the past have had you know, so much happened through occupying government, public facilities and stuff. Yeah. Um, so uh, speaking of Jen, she says she might pop in. I'm sorry, just distracted reading her DM. She was in the chat before, but I didn't see her. She says something happened on Monday Night Football. She got distracted by, <laughs> but she's going to sign in in a few minutes. Jen, if you're already here, get in the... um. Get in the queue. She says she's now read through everything and is willing to give us a little bit of an update. And I think that would be really appreciated. So um, stick around and flag for me in the chat if you see her here in case I miss it. Uh, but thanks, Rusty. Thank you.
All right, I'm gonna come back to the front. Lysol, what's on your mind tonight? Hey, Bree. Hey, 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 what's going on? What are you thinking about? Um, the football thing that she was talking about. A guy what got, happened? He stood up and fell back, hit his head hard. Are on the field, both the teams what? not sure if they're gonna finish. Hey, the Lysol, game. You're, you're cutting in and out. Is that any better? Uh, so far, keep talking. Okay. It might have been, I'll be able to see I had it. my desktop up too, and sometimes that and the phone don't like to play it nice with each other. But yeah, okay. got, a guy got a guy got hit. He got up and then he fell down to the ground. And they were giving him CPR. They took him off in an ambulance. And I'm not sure if they're going to finish the game tonight. Oh no! Is that yeah. why? Wait a minute. Administering CPR is trending. Yeah. That I mean, I've never seen. You know. People get taken off in stretches from football from time to time, but I've never seen the match like do like life reviving steps during oh the game. Oh my god! I'm getting an alert that says Twitter is over capacity when I try to click on the administering CPR trending topic. That's got to be people trying to figure out if he's alive. That's oh why I was trying. <laughs> yeah, it's it's macabre, but it's it's um, I don't know. The NFL's been having a pretty bad year. They have a a, a kind of quasi star quarterback who's. Getting been in and out of concussion protocols. He got a con- he got a concussion and played a game four four days later and got another concussion. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. So all in all, not a good look for them. Um, but in in terms of the episode, and definitely not in terms of talking about Marianne Williamson. Um, did Did you read anything about uh, Mark Milley's? He had he wrote a couple books about being like the Joint Chiefs of Staff during Trump's presidency. No. He, um, yeah, so he wrote a book called I Alone Could Do It, and it's about, like, the last year of the Trump presidency, and he describes, like, meeting regularly with people, like, with the idea that Trump was going to try to do some sort of coup and just, like, kind of, like, make sure that they were um, prepared if that was actually going to happen. And, like, while they didn't react in time with the National Guard to stop people from breaching the Capitol, mm-hmm. it really just have a hard time believing that they would have actually been able to pull that off. Well, do you have a hard time believing that they they believe they could pull it off and that they were trying in earnest to pull that off? Or do you just not believe that it was had any likelihood of being actually successful? Because those are two different things, right? Oh, I'm, I'm in terms sure, of culpability. I'm sure some of them were earnest, and I'm sure some of them, their earnestness waxed and waned with how the afternoon was going. Like, I wasn't going to do it, but everybody else is going. Um, yeah, I saw um, somebody had screenshotted some of Hope Hicks's tweets and she was talking to someone or texting with someone else about how Trump had ruined all of their chances to ever get employment again. And they were saying, you know, Farah, Alyssa Farah seems like a genius now for having left when she did. She was, um, she's now on The View uh, and for a short time was a a co-host at The Hill. And, you know, generally speaking, seemed, genuinely frustrated by the fact that there were these other people among their ranks who quite clearly were trying to budge with the election results. And so I guess, I guess I'm asking, I mean, what, is, what does it mean? What do you, are you saying that you don't think that they were actually, if they were doing it not in earnest, what does that mean in terms of like how much we should care or what their culpability is or anything like that? Does, um, it, does it matter if they didn't think it was actually going to work? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm in the. I think the greater context is like 2016 to 2020 was kind of Trump's presidency was played played out in terms of him versus 
you know, kind of the deep state intelligence community running stuff for Russiagate, that there was like an argument to be made that they thought about overturning the 2016 coup because there weren't Trump fans or overturning the 2016 election and then kind of like, well, there's no way we can legitimately spill, like spin it. But I feel like they had this legit spin to get in and it might have gotten ugly, but I feel like the, I don't think they could have held the Capitol building for more than a couple hours. Right, but the I guess the argument is that it's not about the holding the Capitol building like physically. It's about, oh wait, Jen's back. We'll get Jen to talk about what it's about. Um, but that it's about having enacted this plan that was going to cause legitimate confusion about which slate of elect- electors should be counted. And that Mike Pence had the ability to validate the fake electors and declare Donald Trump uh, a, a, the winner in a way that would have caused a lot of, at very least, delay and confusion and lack of kind of leadership for, for the country for a while, which would have been I mean, unprecedented in nature. With all due respect, I don't think that the path of least resistance for Mike Pence was doing what Trump wanted him to. Well, well, no, I don't think so either. That's why he didn't do it. I think that, you know, he didn't see that ending in any kind of positive way, which is at the yeah. end of the day why he did but the right thing. that was something that Jen said at some point during the episode. It was kind of like, I think, you know, that give Pence credit for not taking the, um, for not taking the easy way out, basically. I'm like, I don't think the easy way out would have been to go against the entire political establishment. Well, let's ask Jen, did she say taking the easy way out or that that was just a way to go, to valid, you know, to, to go with the president? And like so many people did, right? After all, he wasn't acting alone. My note and, says path of least resistance as the quote. All right, well, look, Jen, Jen's in the chat. Welcome, Jen, I just brought you up as speaker. Hey, Jen. I am no longer on mute. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> It's been a minute since I've used this program. (laughs) Thank you for joining. This is such an unexpected treat. Yeah, I saw that you were on here, and I thought I could add some information that I didn't have when we spoke the other day. So, yeah, thanks for having me back. (laughs) Well, hit us, Jen. What have you uncovered? Well, so um, since we spoke, I was able to read the part of the omnibus that updated the um, election laws for how electors need to be appointed by the states, what the vice president's role is. Um, I'm pretty happy with the changes that I'm seeing here. Do you want me to just kind of like go down the thing or? Please. Okay. So um, one of the changes that they made is that they're going to require that all the electors be appointed by election day. And then six days before the meeting of electors, the state has to issue a certificate containing the names of the electors and submit those to the archivist of the United States. So basically, this would eliminate the part of the Trump plan that was like creating this separate state of electors after Election Day. Like, this is all going to be settled before any of us go and vote. Um, it's crazy are- that that doesn't already exist. Like, I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around how electors are chosen by whatever. What are they elect? Are they elect? I'm sorry. Are they elected? Are they cho- no. they're chosen by the party, you said? Yeah, so it's kind of wild the way this works. Both parties pick a slate of electors, which, you know, what if there's a third party or a not party candidate? Like, that's just, like, not Mm. addressed, apparently. Mm. Mm. But um, each party creates their own set of electors, and generally the, the electors are picked by the party leadership based on... Who's popular, I guess, but you see a lot of um, state legislators in there. Um, Ex-party officials tend to be electors. 
They can't be currently sitting at the federal level, um, from what I understand. But yeah, they're party insiders. And so what happens is when we go to vote, the there's a slate of electors for the Democratic Party, a slate of electors for the Republican Party, and we're not actually voting for the president and vice president. We're voting for those electors to go and represent us in those meetings. So we're not directly of electing our presidents. We're we're voting for which slate of electors is going to be the one accepted in mid-December, which I didn't fully understand. Right. So, but that being the case, I'm just... So the, the, the modification here is to say, whoever you want those electors to be, you have to have it locked in by election day. But hypothetically, yeah. if Trump did have this kind of longer term plan afoot more than just a couple of days before election day, then there's a world where if the party were going along with him, this is people's concern, right, about all of these kind of um, election denier Republicans getting elected and having influence, that the party could still pick electors that didn't follow the will of the, ele- the outcome of the election, that did whatever the fake electors were planning to do. Like people right? willing been- to be faithless electors. Yes. Yep, that's a real threat. And um, one of the things that I discovered after we talked is that the Republican National Committee, uh, Mitt Romney's niece is in charge of that, and they were helping the Trump people gather people to be the electors that would sign their names to these certificates and send in this separate slate of electors. So to make this out as if the Trump team was just, you know, going all crazy MAGA, uh, no, the party was actually helping them with this effort. And um, that's fascinating. Okay, so at what point do these factions emerge where it seems like some people said, oh, no, no, this is a bridge too far, and, and like Pence turned heel and other people like Giuliani and co stayed by Trump. Was it just the fact of the storming the Capitol that scared people out of it? What did happen before that? No, there were plenty of people that were saying no to this because John Eastman was, he was really the architect of all this. He was um, Trump's lawyer. Mm -hmm. He wrote this memo that was only two pages and it's crazy. Uh, Let me find this thing because it's actually worth reading to you. It's nuts, but they... They spelled out the um, the plan in very blunt terms. So um, essentially, it says that Vice President Pence presiding over the joint session is going to begin to open and count the ballots. At the end, they want him to announce that because of the ongoing disputes in the seven states, so this is why they were turning in those um, you know those separate slate of electors. Mm-hmm. The plan would be that Pence would say there's ongoing disputes in seven states. There are no electors that can be deemed validly appointed to those states. That would mean that the total number of electors appointed, which is the language in the 12th Amendment, would be 454. By Eastman's judgment, that would mean that a majority of the electors appointed would therefore be 228. There are at this point 232 votes for Trump, 222 for Biden. Pence then gavels President Trump as reelected. He then goes on to say that the Democrats are probably going to call foul, and he says that's fine, because pursuant to the 12th Amendment, no candidate has achieved the necessary majority. That sends the matter to the House, where the votes will be taken by the states, and Republicans had control of 26 of the state delegations, which would mean that Trump would win if that was the way that it was decided as Mm -hmm. well. So they put this in very clear language. 
Um, in this memo that was supposed to be, you know, secret and confidential, we have it now. But that was the overall plan. And there were plenty of people, especially in the Justice Department, um, Trump's lawyers, there were quite a few of them who were like, I want nothing to do with this. If you're going to go forward with this, you're going to do it without me. There were plenty of people even in the White House being like, this is insane. This is bonkers. This is unconstitutional. Um, no, those voices were very much there. But there was um, some were on board and some were not. And it went all the way up to the top of the Republican Party. So that's, so that's a really useful clarification that the, the fake electors weren't intended to certify that Trump had won states where he hadn't won, that he hadn't won, but to cause enough ambiguity to justify Republican Mike Pence saying, we can't get any clarity out of these states. All we can do is go with the states that have not undisputed elector, elector counts, and that was going to give it to Trump anyway. Correct. Correct. The ambiguity was what they were going for. So essentially, like the plan to forge these documents and get Pence to pretend that they meant something, that was what they were saying. Pence, you know, do the right thing. That's what they wanted him to do. Just be like, oh, there's confusion here. Mm -hmm. So we're going to set these states aside and then, you know, the rest of the Eastman plan. So if Pence had said that, is there anything that would have stopped the procedure from going uh, from basically punting it to the house is there is there anything that could have been done at that point or did pence really have the power to fully put the election in the hands of a house vote i think he might have like that's what i keep sitting here and wondering like could this have worked and if you look at the math that john eastman did if pence actually said that all seven of these states were contested which so when you hear them talk about this in committee, they say five to seven states because two of the states were smart enough to say that our documents are only valid if there's a successful judicial review that proves that there was some kind of fraud. They did put that in writing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was that. But if you look at the overall plan and if Pence was fully on board with this, I do wonder how it would have been stopped because the the challenges were so easy to do. You just needed one person from the House and one from the Senate, which, by the way, the omnibus officially changes. It makes it much, much harder to even do a challenge from here on forward. So instead of one House person and one senator, it'll be 20 senators and 87 representatives in the House. So we're not going to have this as often as, you know, we're not going to have seven more of these um, in 2024. That's a good change. But because the challenges were already done, I don't, I don't know. I think it could have worked if Pence was as shameless as them. I, I think it could have. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I want to hear, let's, let's hear from some people in the chat because again, this, this does make me feel like some of the conversation, the use of the C word coup isn't maybe, yeah. isn't quite as absurd as it felt when the plot was framed as, the guy in the like raccoon headpiece and no shirt was going to cause Donald Trump to stay in office, you know? Yeah. The focus on the riot, because even when the January 6th committee, I listened to my old episodes about this, mm. when they were forming the January 6th committee, I dismissed the whole thing as unnecessary mm -hmm. because we already knew why there were these security failures in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Um, which basically it boiled down to bureaucracy, really. 
Um, so I thought it was unnecessary and now I've completely flipped on this, but I think the coverage focusing so much on the riot has done us a huge disservice because I didn't understand this nearly as well as I do now, just how coordinated this, and I've been, I've been hesitant to say coup until I was speaking to you. It was the first time I said uh-huh. it, but like, I don't know what other word would fit better here. Well, let's all yours still up at bat. What do you make of all of this? Sorry, you, you caught me going downstairs. We got a pizza real quick. Um, <laughs> no worries. So, so he could kick it to the house, but the house is still run by Pelosi at that point. Can he force a vote, or maybe she could sue? I feel like it goes to the Supreme Court, and well, the Supreme Court makes this, the next. So at this point in the procedure, it's not really up to Pelosi. From what I understand, it would there's like a forced vote in the House, and it would be based on the state delegations. So it's not, the Democrats don't have control in that scenario because it's done by like Arizona gets to have a vote and then, you know, all of California gets a vote. Like it's done by the state. And so that's why Eastman said, if you do it that way, 26 of the states were Republican controlled. And so that's how they saw that, you know, if it gets kicked to the house, that's how they saw it working out in Trump's favor. So Democrats have control of the House because Democratic states are bigger, so there's more repre- there's more representatives. But when you're voting by state as opposed to voting by representative, Republicans have control. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I, the guy thought yeah, it through. Yeah, he ahead. did the yeah. math. And he picked the states that they needed. Like, I did the math with the Electoral, electoral College. Like, his math makes sense, but his constitutionality didn't um but his math did so lysol it sounds like you're still skeptical that this would have actually thwarted the election results i'm just trying to remember the last time we had a faithless elector scenario remember studying about studying in a college i want to say it was during the reconstruction i'm trying to remember how they handled it back then precedent. I'm Googling it right now. I, I'm not familiar. I don't remember anything. Because I, I feel like that was the election that swung the votes that ended up killing Reconstruction. Okay. Let me, maybe we should, I need to, we need to do that. Want to say grants, maybe? Eric Fauner episode. Okay. A history. Okay. Okay. Well, in the um, meantime, let me tell the listeners that, you know, this whole Eastman plan falls apart because, well, it, the whole Eastman plan was hedged on the fact that there was ambiguity about the vice president's role. And so this newly signed omnibus really does change that because it says very clearly that the vice president's role from now on forward is going to be ministerial in nature, that's a quote, and that the vice president, quote, shall have no power to solely determine, accept, reject, or otherwise adjudicate or resolve disputes over the proper certificate of ascertainment of appointment of electors, the validity of electors, or the votes of electors, unquote. So Congress did solve that problem. Okay, this is, this is what Professor Wikipedia has to say. <laughs> As of the 2020 election, there have been a total of 165 instances of, faithless, of faithlessness. 90 were for president and 75 were for vice president. They That's never a swung. lot. Yeah, well, yeah. Wow. They have never swung an election and nearly all have voted for third party candidates or non-candidates as opposed to switching their support to a major opposing candidate. There were 63 faithless electors in 1872 
when Horace Greenlee died between election day and when the Electoral College convened, but Ulysses S. Grant had already uh, clinched enough to win re-election. During the 1836 election, Virginia's entire 23-man electoral delegation faithlessly abstained from voting for victorious Democratic vice presidential nominee Richard M. Johnson. The loss of Virginia support caused Johnson to fall one electoral vote short of a majority, causing the vice presidential race to be thrown to the U.S. US Senate under a contingent election. The presidential election itself was not in dispute because Virginia's electors voted for Democratic presidential nominee Martin Van Buren as pledged. Okay, so they fully just re- they fully just rejected a vice president, which I did not know had ever happened. <laughs> That's crazy. But I'm not seeing this thing about the Reconstruction one. I may have that confused. It might it might be a different situation where it had to do with having enough delegates and deal making being made. I just because I, so one of the things about Trump is we've always said that there are people smarter than him with more tact than him who are learning from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. DeSantis has kind of looked like, he, I thought it was going to be Holly, but it looks like DeSantis is the one being set up for that model. And I'm just wondering if a Trump that's on good terms with the intelligence community and like has a general kind of like good vibe where he's not firing all of his generals, would, would somebody like that have been able to pull off 2020 in a way that Trump couldn't because he was just too, you know, 18 different qualities that made him not able to do it or pull it off correctly? I fear the same thing. Yeah, same. Look, I'll let you go eat your pizza, Lysol. Thanks for calling in. Oh, for sure. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. All right, I'm going to hop around again and bring someone else up. Um, Let's go to uh, Maria. What do you make of all of this? Hi. Oh, my God. Um, Yeah, I actually um, just, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. Uh, yeah, we, you guys were actually just, or I think, um, the last call I was just talking about, uh, was the, uh, election of, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes. He was, um, it wasn't, it didn't really have to do with the electorates exactly, but it, it, he was decided in essentially a backroom deal compromise that essentially ended reconstruction or at least all of the key components of reconstruction that were sort of being enforced still at the time, like removing all of the uh, union or sort of American troops from the South at the time still. Um, Because I think it was that like, there wasn't enough, like there was a close enough election that they couldn't get um, it. Like went to. uh... Okay. Wait, I think I have it. I think I have it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oregon was a young state. Be patient with me. This is just two paragraphs. I'm sorry. Oregon was a young state in 1876 and its politics were unpredictable. With only three electoral votes, it did not get much attention during the presidential campaign, but Democrats expected to win it. They had won the governorship in 1874 and the following year they had won the state's only congressional seat, albeit by fewer than 300 votes. In 1876, the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes triumphed by only 1,057 votes out of 29,800 cast. Okay, this should have given Hayes all of the state's three electoral votes, but there was a problem. One of the three Republican electors was legally ineligible to serve, and it was unclear as to who, if anyone, would replace him. Normally, losing a single elector would be a minor problem, but Hayes ultimately won the tally in the electoral, electoral college, 185 to 184. Losing one Oregon elector could spell defeat for the Republicans. 
John Watts was the allegedly illegal elector. His problem was that he was the deputy postmaster, blah, blah, blah. Let's pretend we don't care about this. Um, and blah, 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 blah. At that time, voters in Oregon did not directly vote for the presidential candidate. They voted for a slate of candidates. Seems like that's still the case. The electors were still named on the ballots, blah, 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 blah. Um, so basically, yeah, the, they were jockeying over who was supposed to replace the disqualified guy because it had so much import. On December 4th, Oregon Secretary of State, the official in charge of certifying the election's outcome, declared the three Republican elector candidates as the victors. The Democratic Governor Lafayette Grover, however, issued a certificate declaring E.A. Cronin as winning the election as the Tilden elector. This sounds like Lord of the Rings. Okay, <laughs> whatever. You get the gist. It was close, and the shenanigans could have thrown it one way or the other. And that's scary. yeah. Yeah, no, it yeah. was. I think learning about that in uh, in high school in U.S. history was sort of the first time that, like, I think I really fully understood that, like, just how like nonsense the entire. I mean, like, I kind of always thought to some extent that the electoral system was pretty bunk but like it was that like sort of idea of just like this entire era of reconstruction being like really undone because like they were like oh we want to get this one guy in the white like essentially you know he makes a deal to get himself in the white house but gives up everything that like you know was sort of the argument for him like having that power in the first place like gave the other side everything they wanted which sort of defeated the whole I mean, not that Reconstruction was doing that much in the first place, but it was just, I don't know, the whole thing seemed so inherently undemocratic that it was kind of just shocking to some extent to sort of, you know, learn about that somehow. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is shocking. I see that people are saying that Samuel did a great episode on this, and I've invited him up to speak, Sam, if you wanted to, to weigh in. But Maria, I wanted to make sure that you had a chance to say whatever it was that you wanted to say and not get shoehorned into um, just this aspect of the conversation. Um, I mean, you you guys can sort of continue. I sort of had some stuff that was is kind of off topic now, and I can obviously just call in some other time to talk about that. That's... Is it, a, is it all the stuff we were talking about earlier in the episode or like a whole other topic? Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of related. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's really fine. I mean, it's also like, I'm in Sweden, so it's like almost 4 a.m. here. So oh, okay. Kind of. <laughs> right, uh, well, it feels very fortuitous to have called on you when I did because you did point us in the right direction with all of the uh, faithless elector stuff. Um, but I'll, I'll flag it, flag it if I'm not calling on you next time you're in the queue and I'll make sure to prioritize your call. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Maria. And Samuel, if you wanted to weigh in, the people in the chat said that you were an authority <laughs> on this subject. Oh, well, I'm not specifically an authority on the Electoral College, but I have a PhD in early American history, so That'll I should it. know. I will allow it. Check. <laughs> <laughs> so if you... If you want me to explain briefly the 1876-77 situation, I could just give a little outline if you still, if we still care about that. Yeah, please. Um, well, just, it was the last election held during the tail end of Reconstruction, and only a few states, only three states in the South still had U.S. federal troops occupying them, and the main idea was to you know, protect the newly
newly freed citizens' ability to vote. Uh, that was um, an important function of the federal troops in those states. So basically, the election was held, and in those three states, South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, the, the Reconstruction government, state government that was backed and protected by federal troops counted the votes, and they said the Republican Hayes had won, and they sent those electoral votes to Washington. Meanwhile, renegade, illegal, basically um, clandestine alternative state governments also assembled themselves sort of outside the, the, the view of the federal troops, and they basically decided, we're going to draw up our own electoral votes and send them for the Democrat. And so Congress received these conflicting delegations of electoral votes from those three states. Mm. And it became this massive political mess. How could they figure out what would happen uh, if, what, what, what do they do? Do they throw out the Democratic ones? Do they throw out the Republican ones? Do they split the difference? Do they throw out all of them? Who could even decide that? Would it go to the courts? What if, it, if they decided no one had a majority? It went to the House. How would the House delegations vote? It was a gigantic mess, and it dragged on for months, and unresolved. And finally, some Democratic and Republican party bosses and some rich donors and businessmen got together in smoky back rooms, and they worked out a deal where they said Congress will recognize the Republican votes, Hayes will go into office as president, but in return, they would pull those last remaining federal troops out of those states, basically thus handing them over to the white supremacist Democratic Party, and also northern industrialists would make an effort to invest in the South and help rebuild and industrialize the South. So that's how Hayes ended up being president, right? It was all this negotiated deal basically figuring out who's willing to give up the White House in return mm. for something else. So mm. that that's that's the long and the short of it, as best I can explain. <laughs> that's you. helpful. Yeah. That's ham- helpful. Samuel. I mean, that also does beg the question, though, what, if we've known for, uh, you know, 150 years that these are the kind of shenanigans that can ensue, why are we only just now making any kind of barrier against this sort of thing. And moreover, why are we still doing this electoral college thing? <laughs> oh, I know, I know, Such really. A good question. Uh, Jamie Raskin, actually, there was this great Washington Post article about like the backstory of the January 6th commission. Mm-hmm. And Jamie Raskin asked that very same thing. And he wanted to in the omnibus basically get rid of the electoral college and the rest of the commission was like that's a little too much <laughs> but like why right now um like what is the what is the articulated justification for not getting rid of it is there anything that even whiffs of a good excuse to not get rid of it well i have engaged in this a little bit sometimes when i say the electoral college is the result of this bizarre obscure bargain we don't even know really the reasons why the framers created it and people have all these myths about oh well but we have to protect the small states like if if we didn't have the electoral college the big states would dominate over the small states and i mean the logic of that doesn't hold up but people come up with these retroactive notions, filling in the reasoning behind it. You know, it's, it's something about, oh, there's a danger of a candidate who would run up big margins in one region. And- okay, but 
like all, all this nonsense. So let me let me take that back. There's a separate conversation about getting rid of the electoral college, but what I really mean is, why not have a system by which you know the the votes of the state translates into these electoral college votes, and those automatically just get locked in, not that those votes are translated to a group of human beings that then vote en masse. Do you know what I mean? Just straight make from... make more sense. Because faithless electors, why do we allow that? Right. Like, there should be... Like, why is there a human middleman? Like, they voted. We know what the tallies yeah. are. Mm-hmm. We know how many electoral votes each state, get, state gets. Lock it in. Well, I mean, you can kind of see the idea behind it back when you were taking horse and buggies from the states and saying these are our elector like you kind of needed the human intervention because we didn't have fiber optic cables (laughs) i do think things have changed and so your idea makes more sense but you can see why it started this way um why we're not updating it that seems like something we have to ask our congressman about i mean this is nuts because this is the thing about democrats they'll have 2000 happen you know, they'll, they'll, they'll live through that constitutional crisis. They'll complain about it forever. They'll complain about um, George Bush losing the popular vote. They'll complain about all of this stuff. And then at the end of the day, even when they have majorities in Congress and the White House, they'll do nothing about it. And even <laughs> after one sit, they'll do nothing about it. And then they expect us to be mad at, at it the next time some shenanigans go down. Well, looking at this omnibus, to be fair, I'm not going to say that they did nothing. Like, they did take the information that they gathered and made some pretty significant changes. Um, the challenges being a really good one, making those so, so much, much, much harder to do. The ch- so the, the challenge is meaning that the states where the shenanigans happen, it's, it's, a, it's a higher threshold. That there have to be more people from those states to contest the yeah. election results. And it's not even necessarily from those states. So... You know, when Paul Gosar got up there to challenge Arizona, it was because he, being from Arizona, was able to do that, and he got a senator to go along with it. So you just needed those two people to challenge the, you know, the electors being, um, or the the election being accepted. So you just um, needed one senator and one rep from a state? Yeah. So instead of that being the case... What they just did in the omnibus is it says that these challenges have to be in writing and signed by at least a fifth of the Senate, so that's 20 senators, and a fifth of the House, which is 87 members of the House. So if there's, they left the door open for if there's just something so insane in a state, and everybody knows it, like if a, you know, a Giuliani gets his way in one of our states, and it's so obvious to everyone, there is still a path for us to say, like, these are not legitimate certificates these are not legitimate electors like we're not going to have them determine the president of the united states there's still a path for that but it's not as easy as it was in 2020 so i think that's significant and i think just the clarification of what the vice president's role is like had this been law on january 6th of 2021 i don't even think we'd be having this conversation because it would be very clear that there'd be nothing that pence could do that was so unclear um, or at least it was confusing enough. I think it was quite clear, and a lot of lawyers thought it was quite clear, but it was confusing enough that it set up this scenario. This law really does change that. So they fixed some of the obvious problems. We have so, to So not to be that. super pedantic, but just so I am fully understanding here, the, the part, 
So for, for, Mike, for Mike Pence, I don't know, I was about to call him Michael, like I'm his mother. For Michael Pence to be in a position <laughs> to actually punt the decision-making to the House, it wasn't enough for the, um, was it the Secretaries of State or whatever, to say we have conflicting election results. They, there had to be this, the, the, the ambiguity created by the, the fake slate of electors plus the, uh, the House and Senate member from that state affirming, yes, we have a dispute. And only at that point if, can Mike Pence say, this has happened in enough states that we should go ahead and punt it to the House. Yes. And so that's why I'm kind of stunned at how multifaceted this is, because you did have to have different groups working on different parts of this scheme. You had to have the people willing to forge the documents. You had to gather those people to make those documents. You had to have members of Congress willing to challenge in those states. Um, they were also trying in the Justice Department to get the Justice Department to send letters to a bunch of states basically saying, like, we think there's fraud in your state to lend credibility to their lies. And they were willing to, I mean, there's a story that I'm, it's probably going to be about 10 minutes of my episode, just like this crazy story of how Trump was really close to putting a buffoon into the office of the attorney general because this guy would have been willing to send those letters. I mean, it was so multifaceted and there were so many different yeah. groups that had to participate. Um, it's really quite shocking when you sit down and look at the entire picture because as you identify, Pence was, he was essential in their plan but he couldn't have done this without you know paul gosar challenging arizona and you know um uh scott perry in pennsylvania and you know there was a group of them they met this was a plan uh jim jordan i'm i'm still stunned at how in the middle of this jim jordan was and he's going to be on the the chair of the judiciary committee that is mind-boggling to me so this is what's wild because i have heard democrats saying things like these Trump people are dangerous. They're all over government. They haven't suffered any consequences. The coup and all this was bad. And I, as we discussed in the episode, kind of tuned a lot of that out. But presented in this way, their continued presence and influence in politics does seem like it presents a different, like a genuinely meaningful kind of presence, uh, uh, sorry, threat outside of just like, I, I generally don't like Trumpism. I and I wonder that. what you make of how like that seems like a, a, a real unforced error it isn't just me and my cynicism was too much most americans get this and i'm just i'm just new to this because i'm been a dumb dumb leftist no. or have the democrats not done a good enough job explaining that this just isn't about um kind of trump derangement syndrome you know this is actually a, a legitimate threat to the democratic process if if they just had been a little bit better at it and they could be better at it next time. It's certainly not. It's certainly the latter. You are not a dum-dum in any capacity, so well, there's that. But um, just, I had to watch 10 of these hearings. And as I was making my clips, there are entire hearings that I'm not using anything from because there was such a focus on the riot. They're still mm. doing it because they were scared that day. And so they spent so many hours recounting every second of it. Like, look how bad these people were. And they were so mean to the cops. That it was hours and hours and hours of that. Uh -huh. And the stuff that I was focusing, focusing on, like they had um, on October 13th, they had their summary hearing. And 
so much of that was focused on the riot where they really just breezed by the whole fake electors thing. They just called it the scheme and then moved on forward. So I think the Democrats' presentation of this was tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was helpful for me to watch all 10, but like I said in your episode, who's doing that? Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that my work can make this a little bit more palatable if I can get this under two hours because people can take the time for two hours. You can't take, mm-hmm. you know, the 30 that I just took. Um, so it hasn't been explained in a concise form that's easy to get your mind around because it took this exercise for me to wrap my mind around it. Um, and I have been paying some attention to it. I mean, more than anyone else in the country, you and I, Brianna, we spend a lot of time paying attention to this. Like, even if I know that you feel like you haven't spent a lot, but you're, you're paying attention more than the average person. Yeah, but I did watch, um, I forget which round, I think there was a, I feel like it was maybe last February or something. There was a, there was a, that first round of televised, um, impeachment, was it the impeachment? There was some round of hearings where they had all of that initial footage of the storming of the Capitol and the red dots for where the Congress people mm-hmm. were and how close they were to the crowds and that video of like Mitt Romney like running across the, the hallway. <laughs> Sorry, I, don't to, you know, I think it was Holly actually. Oh jo- yeah, it was Josh Holly, you're right. Yeah. So like I, I, I like I, I remember watching that one and I remember either doing this show or some other show and saying like, Yeah, like it did that helped me understand that there was more of a proximity and threat to people's life potentially than I thought before. And that made me think it was a little bit more serious. And even if it's not as important as getting a floor for Medicare for all, I can understand that it's not okay for not to not hold people accountable for doing something like that. Like, like even that made some kind of impression on me and I was watching, but at a certain point it did feel like diminishing returns. Like mm-hmm. I don't have to be convinced that it's bad to try to like string up Congress members. So yeah. I don't have to keep watching it, you know? I <laughs> like do I don't know. have to be yeah. convinced not to vote for Donald Trump. So I don't have to keep watching it. It's kind of what the feeling was for me. Oh yeah, me too. Especially where I just spent my holidays being drilled into my mind like riot bad. <laughs> <laughs> like I get it. Thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah, we had to really fish for the really important stuff. And um, I think that's a major problem is that it just hasn't been explained all that clearly to the American people. Yeah. Well, Jen, tell people, because I see people in the chat saying, who is Jen? What's her platform? (laughs) I want more Jen. You guys, your instincts are correct. You should definitely be following Jen. We should all listen to this two-hour episode, or two-hour plus, no pressure, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying. (laughs) Listen to all of this content. She does such an amazing job just really going through the material in a way that so few people do. She takes the time and effort to do very thoughtful and very well-cited and resourced episodes. So, Jen, tell the people where to find you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the show is called Congressional Dish, and I've been doing this for about a decade now. I read bills and laws, and I watch a ton of hearings, as I'm guessing you can gather from this conversation. (laughs) Um, But my goal is to just highlight the important stuff, the stuff that can affect our country, our lives, and just kind of tune out all of the politics and the noise. And so the episode that I'm referring to is that I spent the last three weeks or so listening to every January 6th commission hearing. I was going to read the report until I realized it was 845 pages. And so I'll be honest, I have skimmed it for the Mm -hmm. information I needed. Um, But yeah, so that I'm hoping, and I think I will, I will have it out on the anniversary on January 6th. But my goal is to make something that's 
easy to digest and to share that explains this part of the story. I will spend very little time on the riot, um, but this part of the story, I think, yeah, I'm just, I'm trying really hard to make that easy to understand. Well, that's the Lord's work as far as I'm concerned. Jen, I don't want you to feel any pressure to stay. We love to have you as long as you want to stay. I'm going to get through a few more callers and then I'm going to wrap this around the two hour, 30 minute mark because I am not missing any days in the gym this year. And you guys aren't going to catch me on January 2nd. That is such a good goal. Um, My husband is going to roll in this door and when he does, then I will leave. But until then, I will hang out with you. Okay, great. Perfect. I love this. All right. Let's go back to the front of the line and pull up Ben. Ben, what is on your mind tonight? Hey, can you guys hear me? Loud and clear. Fantastic. How's it going, Bree? Um, so I got a couple of things. Uh, first, to comment on the decision the committee made to not focus on the structural uh, sort of you know uh, cracks in the armor uh, to the, the, the foundation of democracy in this country, I think was deliberate. I think they focused on the riot because this was it's a political. Uh, hearing it's the it's they're trying to get Trump in the court of public opinion to be able to be like hey look how bad this thing was while he was doing nothing or also encouraging it um, where there's already so much or so little trust in uh, institutions in this country if they were to highlight say how fragile our democracy really is I don't think they wanted that to be the conclusion that Americans drew after mm-hmm. you know ten of these hearings. So I think the, the, the focus on the right was a deliberate and strategic one, regardless of how m- maybe that missed the point. Um, but I appreciate Jen's work on this. I'm going to listen to her, her, uh, her podcast about this. It sounds really interesting. Um, and I already lost a lot, of it, a lot of trust in institutions, so I can't mm-hmm. do any more damage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting idea that, you know, they don't actually want you to, to notice how fragile the system is. And I see some other people in the chat saying, you know, emphasizing the kind of security problems on one six is an excuse to restrict civil liberties and, you know, I mean, increase funding for the Capitol Police, all of those kinds of things. I mean, politics, the politicians are going to politic, right? Like if, if, yeah. if there's a bunch of people that are super pro, you know, um, uh, police or they, they have the opportunity to restrict civil liberties and that's their that's their bag, I guess. Um, and they have the opportunity, they're going to do it because they're politicians and they have the opportunity and power to do so. Um, but that's just my perspective on it. But I wanted to actually bring the conversation back to something, uh, talking about uh, foreign aid and um, uh, Defense Department stuff that we're talking about kind of earlier or touching on earlier in the podcast, if that's okay. Please. All right. So my background is I am... A retired U.S. Army veteran, I spent you know seven years U.S. Army active duty, um, and I am now working for the government again. Now that I went to uh, school with the GI Bill, all that good stuff. I want to pre- I want to preface this that even with all that background, eight hundred some odd billion dollars is far too much. There's so much fraud, waste, and abuse that happens. Mm. It's terrible. However, on rising on the hill, you and Robbie get something wrong about uh, defense aid. And it's been bugging me for, like, months. Tell so, me. So uh, when the Biden administration is sending, you know, $40 billion or $50 billion now uh, dollars worth of military aid, it's not like they're cutting a check to the Ukrainian government saying, here's $50 billion. They're giving them $50 billion worth of stuff, basically. Mm-hmm. 
and it's an estimated value on the actual equipment that they're sending over. For example, the 113s, the MRAPs, the body armor, the rifles, M4s, uh, javelins, um, all that stuff. They're sending it over there, and there's something called the Shelf Life uh, Management Program, where with the exception of really only a couple of things, these are items that would have been replaced anyway, or there are things that would have been um, like sort of cycled out of the military's inventory and surplus anyway. Uh, the 113 is a great example of that. Um, it's a tracked armored personnel carrier from like the 1960s. Um, MRAP's another good example. We're switching over to the JLTVs now, which is a more updated version, but we still have tons of these uh, armored uh, sort of Humvee-like vehicles that are just rolling around um, the Army's inventory. So it, it's a weird opportunity to clear a bunch of the books of equipment that we're going to spend the money to replace regardless. So when the argument is made that we're just spending more and more money on Ukraine, minus a couple of very notable exceptions, it's not really the full amount because it's things that we are either planning to replace anyway or would have to replace anyway based on the normal life cycle of the item. Well, let me understand this because when you say mm -hmm. we'd have to replace the idea, I don't think that anyone is imagining a $50 billion check being cut to Ukraine. What they are imagining is a $50 billion amount of spending going to various defense contractors, Raytheon and the like, on goods that are then sent to Ukraine. And so when you talk about a kind of the American stash needing to be replaced, it does seem to me that, you know, providing equipment, replacing the equipment for people who are staffing all, all the ongoing 800 um, bases or whatever around the world and all of that is a different thing from engaging in a new conflict because I think, you know, a tank, a missile launched in Ukraine is not a missile that's in, you know, Somalia, <laughs> ready to be used at the base there. So, so help me well, understand why this, why you're, I, I you're perceiving it's kind um, of like a zero sum game. Well, it's the op opposite. It's 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 the opposite of the zero sum game because in the example you just gave, one missile that's sent to Ukraine is a missile that is not sent somewhere else, or it's not something that's in a stockpile. No, I'm saying that saying... that sounds like what you were saying to me, which doesn't seem to be true. So, help me understand why we shouldn't be concerned about. $40 billion, $50 billion oh, oh, worth of money spent we, in Ukraine. We, we should be concerned, absolutely. What I'm saying is that I, I did some basic Googling and math before this while I was sitting in the queue. Mm -hmm. um, for example, we sent 800 Stinger launchers, 2,000 Javelins. We're at most going to send eight Patriot missile launchers and 20 HIMARS. The actual value of those systems is only about a billion, oh, only, it's only about a billion dollars uh, of the $40 billion. Because of the life cycle management process, all of the ammunition that is used by those systems, the Javelin actual ordnance, the HIMARS actual missiles, et cetera, et cetera, those are, they all have expiration dates. So they would have had to be replaced anyway, say 10 years from now, regardless. So you have this weird uh, balancing act that's being played by the uh, Defense Department, where on one hand, you have a bunch of material that's being sent over there but it's things that were either at the end of their life cycle anyway, or things that would have to get replaced regardless. So there isn't this like gravity well of absence in the same way as far as like, you know, the idea of sending $50 billion over there in uh, like, it's not new spending in that, in the same way as it's usually described by um, the arguments against the aid, which is like, we could use that money 
over here. Like, yes, that's true. But for example, like the 113, all the contracts for the JLTVs have already that are replacing, you know, the MRAPs and the, that part of the military industrial complex, those have already all been signed. So what the army is doing is offloading a bunch of stuff they would have to decommission and surplus anyway, which is freeing up space for the new stuff that they already bought. I guess I, I'm just, I'm sorry if I'm being daft, but I'm, I'm struggling to see what the difference is. So if, if I, if I go to the grocery store and buy $500 worth of groceries and I see somebody needy in the next row who can't afford their groceries and I say, here, take my cart. I've already spent the money. It doesn't mean it's not, I'm still going to have to go shopping again, buy the groceries I originally was trying to buy for my family and check out. So I'm still spending $1,000, whereas previously I was only spending $500. Just because the groceries were eventually going to perish, you know, and we weren't going to eat some of them and blah, 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 doesn't mean that I'm still not spending more because I've chosen to engage with this other shopper. I I think I understand understand what you're you're talking about, but I'll use a different example. So say, for example, uh, a household buys a car. They, they buy a car, you know, for, you know, $40,000 or whatever, um, and they drive it. But after a while, you know, it's 10 years old. They don't drive it very much. And it's just sitting in their driveway. And like, you know what? As a family, we're going to buy a new car. And then they say, oh, we're going to give this $40,000 car to our neighbor. It means that you're not. And, and then you could say, oh, well, I'm, I'm losing this asset. But if you're not using the asset to begin with, and you're just it's giving it. It's an asset. You can sell your yeah. car. Most people sell cars right. and they get new cars because there's money in them and they need the right. money to but buy a new car. In in the name in the, the world of defense though, like no one's gonna buy one one threes. Again, these are these are this is a design from the nineteen sixties. Uh, in for example, this is the sort of the vehicle to vehicle analysis where they wouldn't be able to sell that to anybody who would want it anyway. But if you don't have any armored personnel carriers and there's a country that is willing to give you a bunch of them then that ends up looking like you're giving them tons of money worth of equipment when really giving them something you're not using anyway. Let, let, me, ask you the question, let me ask you the question this way. It seems like you're saying that the government is overstating the amount of yes. value that it's giving to Ukraine, despite there being yes. so much public pushback against the amount that's being spent. So why would they intentionally overstate what they're giving to Ukraine when there doesn't seem to be like, People clamoring to say, oh, yes, we need exactly $80 billion to Ukraine. People want to know that we're generally supporting them. Right. I think that politicians are doing that for the opposite reason, just to genuinely supporting them. But as far as the Department of Defense goes, they're required to. So uh, you see this for great examples are like Israel. We, give, we, we, we essentially sell them F-15s and F-16s, right? So they're they're buying our weapons but even though they're buying it this is a slightly different situation but even though they're buying our fighter jets in this instance we are giving them them those fighter jets as aid so whatever they they buy those fighter jets for we say okay cool we gave you this amount of money in aid so it's this bizarre like again it's this is not a normal system it's a bureaucratic nightmare but you get this weird shell game of the department of defense has to has to report the value uh, in traditional nation-to-nation type of, type of uh, operations, uh, how much the estimated value of the equipment they are providing is to that government. Right. And you're saying that yeah. they are overestimating it because mm-hmm. they're, they're because giving them a, a, a missile worth 
$30 and saying it's worth $100 because... Well, kind of. So they're, it's like they're giving Ukraine, in this example, uh, the government paid, let's say, uh, $100 for a piece of equipment. But that equipment has been life-cycled out of the military. It's not used anymore. It's not part of the, uh, the modernization program for the military. We've already bought a whole bunch of new stuff that replaces the old stuff. That $100, you say, hey, we paid 100 bucks for this, and we're going to give it to you, so we gave you $100 for the stuff. Even though, to you, you've already spent the money, you've already replaced it, it's functionally worthless. In fact, it's costing you money to store it, to conduct maintenance on it, all that good stuff. Look, I understand all that. I, I, like, I understand all of that. I don't think it departs from my general understanding of how these things work. But my concern is this. Offering aid, offloading supplies, it's not just a one-to-one replacement of what is already going to go out of business or out of commission because of age or whatever. You're both, you're, you might be extending the value of something that wasn't going to get used because America wasn't in an armed conflict, but it still has to get replaced. Stockpiles still need to be replaced. Americans right. stationed all over the world are still needing to get equipment. And the whole point is that there's this relationship between our government and these military contractors exemplified by the existence of Lloyd Austin, former Raytheon yeah. Former Raytheon executive, yeah. <laughs> right. And that the war, the, the stocks for all of these companies are up because the war is generating a demand for more products, not just a status quo number of products. And so the so, complaint well, isn't just that, you know, Ukraine has a bunch of money, like nobody is, you know, apart from the argument, obviously, that it is prolonging a conflict and discouraging diplomacy that is ultimately going to cause there to be a, a permanent resolution. The, the, the problem isn't just that Ukraine is getting some money or Ukraine is getting some things, but that it's all of the hands of money passes through on this end as well. And that none of this is actually about foreign policy calculated to creating peace in the region, but about using it to, to launder taxpayer funds, as it were, toward all of these contractors that definitely is a part of it but in this particular instance like it's kind of like, i'll use a different analogy so say you go buy a tomato from the grocery store that tomato has a shelf life it, it like all the ordnance like the, the the actual munitions that are being sent over there not the launchers but the like the actual javelin missiles the actual stinger missiles etc those are like tomatoes where at a certain point you can't eat it anymore because it's going to go bad. In this case, you'll have to decommission the ordinance and destroy it or refurbish it or whatever, spend more money to either replace it or to uh, recertify it to be able to be used in the future. If you give that tomato, if you're like, hey, I don't want this tomato, I'm going to give this to my neighbor, and you say, hey, that tomato was worth a dollar, you can say, hey, I'm going to give you this dollar, but you would have, if you're going to have to eventually buy another tomato anyway. To replace that original tomato. Does that make any, any sense? Right, but these no, things aren't that. tomatoes yeah. that have a shelf life of a day. But I appreciate are, you saying that they have yeah. a shorter shelf life than a brand new thing. But unless mm. you're saying that we're literally sh- shipping scrap metal to Ukraine and overcharging them for it. First of all, even if we were shipping scrap metal to Ukraine and overcharging or over well, accounting for it, yeah. it's still a problem on multiple levels. 
right? Right. So, so my, my pedantic issue with this is just the characterization that we are giving them $50 billion worth of stuff when really we're not. We're giving them about maybe 2 to $5 billion worth of goods that we would have to replace for, like that we would have to replace that wouldn't have to otherwise. Like a Stinger missile launcher and like the, the, the or the radar system for the HIMARS, those are things that are actively in use in the U.S. Army. Like those are things that we are going to have to replace to maintain the current uh, manning levels for um, the units that we currently have uh, on active duty. The all the, the munitions that are going out the door, those all have expiration dates that are going to run out. So if you have to replace it anyway, it's not a one to one exchange where you're going to say, hey, you know, um, we are we if we didn't if we didn't send it to to you to Ukraine, it would just be indefinite. We'd be able to have this thing forever in a stockpile and not for it. Right. Like I, I understand completely what you're saying, but I just don't, I just don't think that it it matters. I think it do, does, because do, that's, do the, that's like the economic it, argument. Like, if we're, if we're spending all these resources on Ukraine, we could use them at home for, like, you know, socialized health care, for a bunch of other right, but that's, very that's noble not on, causes. That's not on me. Look, if, if yeah. the senators, if the Congress members that are voting for this mm-hmm. want to say, oh, actually, we can't spend money on the child tax credit because we're not actually sending $80 billion to Ukraine, God bless them, let them say it. But they can't have it both ways. They can't express and budget and write on a piece of paper that we are going to budget for $80 billion in the defense budget. This is not whatever, whatever is happening on the ground. They are accounting at the highest level of public policy for $80 billion of aid to Ukraine. And if they can write down on a piece of paper that it's okay to give $80 billion of aid to Ukraine, they can write down on a piece of paper that it's okay to fund a child tax credit or any other kind of thing. Cancel, cancel eighty the eighty thousand eighty billion dollars of outstanding medical debt that existed when Bernie was running in twenty nineteen and all of that sort of thing. So if they if they want to make that argument, they can make that argument. But I don't think it's on us from a rhetorical perspective or kind of a ethical perspective to be doing the work of downplaying what the government is representing. They are willing to spend on something that is not the American people. Well, you know. So well, I definitely agree that. The fact that we are spending money on something that that you don't believe should be spent money on, that is that's that's valid and and uh, not entirely the point I'm trying to make. What uh, the the Rand Pauls and libertarians of the world, though, even though I tend to sympathize with that particular uh, narrative, they usually say, "Hey, we're spending all of this money on this excess. So we're wasting all of this money," and it's just a gross mischaracterization of the actual effect on military industrial complex that's that, like what's actually happening uh from like a, a monetary level well also look ben, in reality we, here it's kind of an mmt person anyway and so when we when we're kind of entertaining these arguments about taxpayer money could go here and not there like none of us mean it literally like none of us think that's actually true or what's with what or what the barrier is to doing domestic spending we are we are we are just exploiting the rhetorical um, admissions, the, 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 the rhetorical game, we're exploiting the admissions that are being made by the government about what spending is and isn't okay in anticipation of the fact that they use too much spending as the excuse for why they don't implement any number of uh, domestic programs. So well, I, 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 I think I broadly agree with that, with that, that stance. The, I guess the, the frustrating thing to me is I, I kind of know how the system works on the inside to the point where 
they're, like both sides are wrong, right? Like it, the argument that like we're spending all these all these resources are going to Ukraine, and that we're going to have to re- spend all this money to like backfill it on our end, that's inaccurate. But at the same time, the argument that like uh, we just don't have enough money to spend on social programs is also bullshit. We absolutely do. So it ends up being this frustrating middle of the road situation where I'm like, well, no one's getting it right. That's, that's killing me. Yeah. Look, I, I, people in the chat are saying they want Shelly to weigh in. So Shelly, say your piece. Uh, hey, yeah. Hi, Ben. So I, so if what I'm understanding what you're characterizing this is, is that the money that we are saying that we're spending in for whatever, 50 billion in Ukraine, we're probably only spending 10 billion. Right. And that's because yeah. we're these old stocks and so these are old weapons we got to get rid of them anyway right uh more or less yes that well, not that, not that we have to get rid of them i'm saying that the the actual valuation of tangible items leaving the u.s is not this the one-to-one to the argument that's being made that we're spending all these resources that uh we wouldn't normally have to spend okay so do you have any idea where the excess the overestimation of money is being spent because uh, Yes, I, I do feel I do. like there's like sort of a one to one correlation of our debt. So that money is somewhere. It's being to be honest, it's usually being wasted. So the the frustrating one of the frustrating parts of, of government budgets and some some people that are probably listening to this have experienced this on the local level is that if you have a budget for a year and you don't use all that money, say you get a million dollars to run a program. If you don't spend that million dollars, only spend eight hundred thousand. The next year, the, the the oversight of that organization say, okay, cool, your budget's now eight hundred thousand right. dollars. So that dynamic runs through the entire Department of Defense. So literally, the budgets can only go up because all the people that are influential in these programs, like, wait, I mean, we really need all these capabilities, and like last year we spent. No one says we can do more with less. They all say they can do more with more. So right. at the end of the fiscal year, what ends up happening almost every time throughout the government is people start looking for ways to spend money where either they have uh, they have more budget than they can actually use. They waste it on dumb shit like buying office chairs and shit like that. Or they they if they if they are overspending on a project and they're running out of money, they start working in earnest to convince the people that make the budgeting decisions. Hey, we need more money because we're running out. Yeah. So yeah. It's this feedback loop. Right. Or I would also posit that, you know, there have been multiple audits of like the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, everyone. and they mm-hmm. fail everyone. Fifth and in a row, most people and most people speculate that that is the money that goes for covert and black covert and black operations, basically CIA funding. Basically, uh, from what I'm kind of from how I'm sort of mm-hmm. reading this, and I want your take on this is mm-hmm. I'm thinking that, OK, we overestimate the money. We still mm-hmm. have that money. All yeah. that other money that is that overestimation money that goes into our covert operations. So when one war ends, we've spent all the other money in other places that have funded whatever divide and conquer strategies. And so when that war ends, we can just start a new war and then we can replenish our stocks by selling that war weapons. So, so the, the, what you're talking about does happen, but it happens in bizarrely a more structured way for my opinion. I don't work for the CIA. I don't fucking know how right, it works from the inside out. But I'm talking about normal programs. Like, you know, um, if the Army wants a, uh, a new uniform uh, camouflage pattern, like that program has a budget and they estimate the funds or whatever. The waste happens inside that 
program. It's the project manager being like, oh shit, I didn't spend my million dollars. I'm going to go buy some dumb shit or plan some tests for that particular piece of equipment that is not necessary, but I want to maintain my budget for the next year. The so discretionary even- spending is different. That's what is linked to the CIA, FBI, like all of the, the, the three letter agencies that, you know, five eyes, that kind of stuff. There's right. already so earmarked discretionary not- spending for that. Yeah. Even if it's not as nefarious as what I'm explaining, it still is essentially a money laundering operation for whatever contractors are creating those new army patterns, are creating those new weapons. Are it? I mean, does that make sense? It, it just still, yeah. it's just an even bigger graft than what we were kind of even thinking it was. Uh, yes and no. So there are some oversight organizations. I work for one of the or, uh, uh, oversight organizations that specifically designs testing and evaluation criteria to cut through the bullshit. Like if someone designs a, a new a new tank and we test that tank and that tank fucking sucks, we can say, hey, we did all the testing. Here's the results. Here's our report. And that goes to Congress. And they say, oh, shit, this tank sucks. Let's not buy it. But historically, you're 100% correct. In fact, the agency I currently work for has only been around in this particular format for like the past six years. So... There, those relationships a hundred percent exist. That there are people that are just bros, and like if at the end of the year if that sh- if that comes around and uh, you, you're you're golfing buddies with some Raytheon executive, like hey, does that missile, does that new Hellfire need uh, testing at White Sands for something? I'm like oh yeah, maybe do some electronic warfare testing or whatever. Where it's still a legitimate test, but is it necessary? Probably. I not. want to bang my head against a wall. Yeah. <laughs> It's bureaucracy, man. It's it's a weird, it's a bizarre shell game of policy decisions that seem good at the time. Like, for example, saying like, oh, yeah, if, you, if you've got a program from like on the face of it, uh, didn't spend all their money. Yeah, then you don't need more money next year. But that simple dynamic forces people whose jobs are dependent on the success of their project, the project managers, to be able to be like, oh, shit, I have to spend this money or next year when I have actual tests I need to do or actual uh, things that I need to accomplish, I won't have the resources. Yeah, I, I used to... That is bizarre double-edged sword. I used to do ordering, like, just office ordering for, like, a state off like agency, and we had the same thing. It's like, at the end of the yeah. day, we order pencils and erasers, like, whatever things that we know we're going to use up, you know, just to... Yeah. I, I totally understand what that means. But right. the reason why I feel like this one is especially important, why, is, is because we are funding this this budgetary oversight is going into a military industrial com- uh, complex that is intent on waging war and death all over the world this is not just extra pencils and erasers even though that is sort of bureaucratic corruption in of itself this is an incredibly incredibly nasty fucking system that is just used to just destroy countries and peoples all over the world it just just so golfing buddies can get a fucking a handshake and hey we're friends and maybe next time we can work out an even more nefarious deal. Bree, I mean, what do you think? I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I someone in the chat says something along the lines of Ben. Ben is basically explaining a kind of money laundering and, and the kind of the tone that you're taking, Ben, is that you're saying that how I'm describing it or how Robbie and I are describing it is different than the reality. But I think that we're taking issue with that. that the reality is even more nefarious. Oh, I'm not trying to say it's good, bad or indifferent. I'm just, I'm just, I, the, I'm an engineer. So I'm just like, there's something wrong with the internet. I must, I must speak on it. No, I, I hear so, that. But also yeah. like, I, I just, 
I just, I don't think that what we're saying is actually different from what you are. We're talking about exploiting the rhetorical position that's being taken by Congress, not right. counting dollars and cents and pretending like the reason that we don't have universal health care is because of military spending, because nobody believes that's true. So to me, I guess it's just, I'm having a hard time understanding why it matters. I mean, I think like, that amongst this group, that's that's a true statement. I think if you look at the country writ large, if you take, you know, average Democrat off the street and say, hey, uh, if we spent less on defense, could we afford more programs? They would say yes, because that, that, well, that's I mean, that but that's that why we're saying what yeah. we're saying. It's, it's even more important that look, Robbie and I are making those arguments for a more normie audience. If you believe in MMT, everyone's ignoring us. If you believe in MMT, the reason that you don't want funding for Ukraine is because you think you're prolonging a war and it's getting people killed. So, like, forget about it. But if you're not, if you don't believe in MMT, if you're the conservative audience at the Hill or whatever, and you, if you, if you think in dollars and cents and that's the way the budget works, like, I don't have time in a seven-minute segment to convince you that that's not the case. But if you're buying into this kind of conservative narrative that, of course, we have money for domestic spending if we're able to spend on Ukraine, I'm just going to take the W. Yes, we have money for domestic spending. Yes, we could be doing domestic programs. I'm going to take the W and keep it pushing. And we can have the MMT conversation at a later date. Um, But I just, I have a hard time not just wanting to take the W. I mean, just just take it. That's totally fine. Maybe it's more for the Robbies of the world who keep on saying that, (laughs) that we have all this money for Ukraine when in reality, a lot of that, the, the equipment we sent, sent over is either going to get paid for later anyway, or are things that are being replaced. And so, I would also have to say, I have seen just since this whole entire war has started and I've gotten on the, all of the telegram channels and I follow that stuff and I've seen all the terrible things. I have seen hundreds of videos of these old weapon systems that we are dutifully giving to Ukrainians to fight a war of self-determination for democracy, freedom whatsoever handling faulty weapons that are ultimately getting Ukrainians killed. This has well, nothing to do about protecting Ukraine. So I think you're right. I think that this has nothing to do about protecting Ukraine. And it's about, you know, the Machiavellian State Department bullshit. But the, the stuff we're sending, though, does work, though. That's the thing. It's not faulty. Like, it's old, but it works. Like, the body armor sending them is, is still in date. It will stop bullets. We're sending them yeah. M4 well, things rifles. like that, obviously. Yeah. And yeah, also, isn't the, all aren't all Russia's weapons and stuff old too? Like, yeah, that's that's been the that's isn't been the it still better story. than what Russia's got? Isn't this not the point? Like, just because it has yeah. less value to us, just because I throw out some sweaters and aren't in style anymore because we're not doing like 2008 J Crew, like doesn't mean it's not a valuable thing. Like that's why it's going to Goodwill yeah. and not the trash. You know, it's still right. valuable. Exactly. My old and computer is still valuable just because yeah. I got a new one. You know. Exactly. And also, if Ukraine, if the if uh, President Zelensky was getting shitty equipment from the U.S. or equipment that they, they couldn't use efficiently, they'd stop asking for it. But yeah. he's in Congress making speeches, you know? Yeah. Well, look, this has been yeah, out of parts far too long. But yeah, we're nine minutes over when I said I was going to wrap. And I feel bad for some folks in the front of the queue. So, um, Shelly, I want to give you just a minute if you have something else to say that wasn't oh, about this. No, I, I had plenty of other things to say, but obviously we're over time. And I just thank you, Ben, for kind of you know, letting us pick your brain and do all that. And also thank you, Bree, for kind of bringing me up and sort of letting me interrogate. I really appreciate it. Bye, no, of course. The the crowd thank, thank speaks. You, I listen. Thank you, Ben. Keep the faith.
All right, Tyler, you've been patient. What's on your mind? You might probably be the last caller. Um, well, I'll be really quick. I just want to um, first say that I've been listening for a long time. I'm super excited to get through the queue. This is my first time ever doing it, so I'm super excited to, to say hello. Um, but what I really wanted to say is um, I was really thankful for this um, bad faith today. I thought it was a very interesting, helped me kind of refocus in on the Jan 6 uh just information because you're right like the the media i take in i try to be very selective didn't have a whole lot of focus on it so i was uh, it was enlightening to hear but the thing that really stuck with me is i felt like we gave a little too much credence to mike pence for not being as responsible for the final finality of january 6th but for so much time leading up to it he kind of helped build trump into you know the the nefarious character he was um, all throughout his presidency. Um, you know, I, I felt like the whole time I heard her speaking throughout the, the chat with you, I just want to say, but he's still a bad person mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and still responsible for what he did. You know, the, the I think the, the worst thing about what Mike Pence did in regards to his partnership with Trump is that he gave political power and prowess and capital to Trump. You know, a lot of people I think wrote Trump off and that's, how he kind of snuck through for so long. But then by bringing on somebody who had that political capital like Mike Pence did for having spent so much time on the Hill, he did have those insider connections that really helped bring some finality and bring over the politically minded uh, right wing support that sealed the deal for him getting um, the election or mm. at least support of the right wing. So um, I won't go on because I know that we are over, but I just really wanted to say I, I don't want to give any credit, any credit, any credence, any even, you know, Nancy Pelosi style claps as disgusting as <laughs> saying her name makes me feel. But that clap is just a meme I love to use. Um, but I don't want to give him any of any of that. So I'll just wrap up by saying that. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, it feels a little like how the position we were in with John McCain and, you know, not voting out Obamacare. Like, OK. You've said some schmucky stuff over the course of your life. You've had some real shitty votes. You've been a Republican. You, you know, you've allowed a lot of bullshit to happen on your watch. You chose um, Sarah Palin as your VP. You know, there was the thing with the uh, slur. You know, there's a lot of shit to be upset with him about. You know, do you know? How do you what what do you do with the fact that but for him also though they would have voted down Obamacare like eh, how do you how do you acknowledge the good thing that happened that didn't have to be done you know how do you how do you talk about that moment where you know that person in the crowd says I don't like Obama um, because he's a Muslim and John McCain says well no actually Obama's a good guy and also he should have said also Muslims are good. <laughs> Right. But he didn't. But then he kind of said the right thing, but only half. Like, what do you do with these people who do, like, kind of half the right thing? I don't know. It's tough. Because like, you want to acknowledge that they didn't have to do that because you want to you encourage good behavior without losing sight of the fact that there are no heroes. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I jokingly say, like, I have a, my mom's, I mean, a MAGA, like, a major MAGA. She actually came to my gay kickball game wearing a Women for Trump shirt. So it's, mm-hmm. just, it's next level. But sometimes in arguments with her, I'm like, I don't want to defend Biden, but at least be accurate. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in that kind of thing. So I get what you're saying. Um, but I think for me, one last just hints rant for two seconds is 
you know, I, when she when she described she, he made the hard choice, I actually really think that it was him surviving, doing the long-term survival. Um, by stepping away, he gives himself still long-term credibility in the political sphere. So I also, I think there's a certain level of... Self-interestedness. Exactly. Self-interestedness. So, yeah. but that's just... That's that's all I'll say. Thank you again so much. Um, really big fan. I'm so glad I got to talk. Yeah, thank you. I also enjoyed this very much. And I will see you guys. Like I said, I've got some good interviews um, coming your way. So stay tuned. And I will see you on, um, what is it? Thursday. What is it today? Monday? Goodness gracious. I'm also trying to play you some bomb playout music. But for some reason, it is not coming through the speakers. Yes, hear that? Brianna, Brianna, could I break in for a second? Sorry to break you. What is happening? Right. Oh, Samuel. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Samuel. Um, another great episode. Thank you, Brianna. And I was on the Katie Halper show last week. Check it out. Okay. Everyone go check out Sam. I saw a lot of positive comments about that. Okay, here we go. I'm playing you out. Good night, everybody. See you next week. <laughs>